0: Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Duelist Community. Today is going to be a QA and a episode and I'm Andrew.
1: I'm Ray and uh, we're going to be doing our best to provide some perspective on some of these questions and uh I hate to say we're going to give answers because of course answers aren't necessarily what we're looking for, but um, we're definitely going to look at it from as many different angles as we can, kind of give you our perspective on it. And then of course, hopefully that will encourage you to submit more questions for next season's Q&A episode so we can go into greater depth or even cover it in a future episode in season two. So we're going to start here. Um, The first question comes from one of our supporters on Patreon. And of course, I'm excited to ask this question because it was part of our foundational discussion when we first started this podcast. I'm curious to know about you and Andrew's thoughts on bad trips on mushrooms or other psychedelics. Could you uh, describe how you would deal with that and what a bad trip would feel like? So I'd like to let Andrew go first on this one.
0: Um, so in my understanding and things that I've read, I haven't personally had a bad trip. And I, I don't even like using the word bad because they're all just individual perceptions of how things are. But I think when people describe having bad trips, it's very much a resistance versus acceptance type situation or, you know, resisting versus surrendering, um, to what you're feeling and accepting what you're feeling or like going down this path of not wanting to feel what you feel. So in my situation um, I've you know only tripped on higher doses of mushrooms a handful of times, but uh, the first few times, uh, especially the first and second time I, I did a higher dose, there was a point I remember on the come up where I started to really, it started hitting me pretty strongly. And there was a split second where I was like, Oh boy, this is kind of, kind of a lot right now. And then I immediately told myself, this is okay. It's okay. I'm supposed to be feeling this. It's okay. Surrender, accept. And those sorts of things just kept going through my head. So I think in a situation where I may have continued on that, like, whoa, I don't like this. I, I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I don't want to go down this path. Like that can lead to a situation where you are resistant to it and potentially what someone would label as a bad trip. But I think the thing that through the act of tripping or taking mushrooms or anything like that, you know, you, you are able to see things more clearly, but also the act in itself is sort of a, I don't want to not like a meditation, but a practice in acceptance because the experience of it in itself, like you feel differently, you are existing in, a slightly altered state of being than you typically are. It's different. It's uncertain. It's unknown. So, in itself, it's a practice in this acceptance of uncertainty. So, I don't know, you know, good, bad, all just perceptions, right? Um, but that is my take in my experience where I think there were points where if I had resisted as opposed to surrendered or accepted, it would have potentially gone down a route that could have been considered you know, a bad trip. Um, but that, yeah, that's, that's my take.
1: That's good. But it, it is. In fact, um, I, I used to refer to it as a symbolic leap of faith, right? like you're, you're surrendering control. You're surrendering it up to this, this substance that you're taking and you're just waiting to see what's going to happen. And so there's, your mind is always wanting to do the same thing that it's always doing. I've always found that on, on psychedelics or hallucinogenics, regardless of what they might be, what happens is the, the state of mind that we're always in, or, or rather the, the mentality that we're always experiencing, all of a sudden just becomes more pronounced. It's, it's all of a sudden like our sensitivity to our own mind becomes increased. So anything that, that, that comes through our mind is so raw and in our face that we don't have our, our identity and we don't have the task list of tomorrow and we don't have our ambitions and, and our worries about what people think of us, to block us from having those thoughts, to have that experience, right? So I know in my experience when I was much, much younger, I've been in in a number of uh, situations where the situation went bad. And had I not been able to relax myself through it, it would have been, been a very different experience for me. Experiences where I've been, say, at somebody else's house and then all of a sudden something in a different part of the house went bad and and suddenly there were police there and there was a fight that broke out and all of this. And meanwhile I was in the basement, you know, just blissing out on life, having a great conversation about the philosophy of God and and being. And then suddenly we come upstairs and there's cops outside and there's all kinds of stuff happening. And we're like, what is happening here? And, And of course at that point you can panic. And one of our friends did. And so we just kind of walked him through the same lessons that we walk ourselves through all the time, every day, which is, you don't know why they're here. You don't know that they're here for you. You don't know what's happening. So don't assume anything, right? And so all of a sudden, after about five, 10 minutes of doing that with him and just walking and walking, removing ourselves from the narrative and all our assumptions of what it might be, he was doing just fine. And so it's very much the same thing that we do in our, in our waking life, except that it, it's so much more important that we take it as a priority on hallucinogenics or in psychedelics or in altered states of consciousness because of that sensitivity, because of that that particular, um, well, just how much of a hair trigger your mind can be in that state. Because if you decide, I don't like this, you're going to get about a thousand reasons that you don't like this. And they're all going to come at once where if you go, I don't know what's happening. You're going to come up with a thousand reasons to not care. Right. And it's just it's that simple. And it's because your brain is working so much faster in those states of mind. It's not resorting to the same structure it's used to. It's, it's relying on all of your senses, not just the ones that you're focusing on. There's so much happening. So often a bad trip is the is the trip that we just don't we don't allow to happen on its own kind of the point it's the same thing we do in life we don't allow life to happen on its own we're constantly micromanaging our role within it we're constantly micromanaging and and analyzing everything that we do from moment to moment to moment moment. and so we don't allow the here and now to be what it is we're always superimposing distortion over top of it so just as we do that in our waking life we do that on hallucinogenics except on again hallucinogenics it just happens that much faster so it, it becomes the practice like andrew said of of letting go it becomes a day-to-day practice if you practice it in your waking life then on hallucinogenics you won't have any problems at all but if you practice it uh, on a psychedelic experience and not in your waking life then you're going to assume it's the psychedelics that are giving you those insights when it's not it was the choice that you were making in the moment regardless of the conscious environment
0: Mm -hmm. yeah what I've found too with um you know just recently getting into you know mushroom psychedelic realm is that it, it very much like I, I fully remember how I felt on them when I was peeled back like that. And it like, it very much has meshed into my sober existence. Like I wake up and walking around, like how I felt microdosing, you know, two months ago, I feel like that not microdosing now. And even I found, which has been kind of interesting. I took, uh, was it like one and a half grams last like a week and a half ago. And I, I was fully hallucinating and I, I don't think I did that uh, like two months ago. Like it's become stronger in the sense that like I get there quicker. Cause I remember you said that you take half a gram now and you get to a place that you used to get on like seven or eight grams. Is that like, is that, do you think because you, begin incorporating it more into your own life. So there's already, so like an, an example, i just sort of thought of was like, because when you take mushrooms, you, it kind of peels you back more. So like there's, you know, there's all of these layers say with someone who is very sure of things and then, you know, mushrooms peel those back and they may peel a few back and then, you know, a higher dose may peel more back. But then if you live in existence where there's fewer layers to begin with, then it peels you back to the point that like, there's just one peeling. So like for you half a gram, that's all you need. And all of a sudden you're fully peeled back. Whereas, you know, someone else, it may change. So like for me taking one and a half grams could be the equivalent of taking like two and a half grams two months ago. Um, but I found that to be very interesting because I always tell people like, oh yeah, you start hallucinating around, you know, between two and three grams totally depends on people. And I took a gram and a half and I'm like, wow, I'm very much like, tripping right now. I was not really expecting this, but all right, cool.
1: <laughs> Saving money. <laughs> right? But no, it, it really is that it's uh, you described it really well. It, it's like there are so many layers. There's that gap between who we are in sobriety and then who we are in the psychedelic experience. Right. And it, if if it is a very wide gap, if the rest of the time you're always thinking you are something and then all of a sudden you end up in this place where you're not thinking about anything, it takes you a while to, to just get used to that state of being. And so you kind of ease yourself into it, which is often why we resist on a trip. It's all all of a sudden it becomes a little bit too much to let go of. We're like, oh, I don't like how that feels. And we resist and that's when things kind of go sideways, which is why we, we answered somebody else on our live stream last week on Patreon that if you're going to look into doing this as an experience, start very small. Start very small, allow yourself to kind of peel the layers back gradually allow yourself to get used to the idea that you don't always have to be thinking about yourself. So that way, when you get to that place, it's not such a contrast between one and the other. It's not so jarring because that's very much what it is. But, and I wanna make this point again, this is the the same thing is true for every single moment. We're always avoiding the intensity of being present, right? It doesn't matter on psychedelics or not because there's nothing that psychedelics can do to your brain that your brain can't do to itself. Right. And so in each and every moment, we have the same opportunity to just let go and allow ourselves to experience you know, what it is to be high, which is, again, just synonymous with an extreme state of relaxation. That's all that is. Right. But yeah, I, I find it really interesting that it's always the same choice. It's just how quickly our mind reacts to that choice, how quickly our, our mind is, is willing to go in the direction that we want it to go. And that's always based on, on what we do day-to-day, moment-to-moment. It's, it's based on our priorities. So as you are more and more um, abandoning your perspective that you are Andrew, there's just less Andrew to let go of, right? And so all of a sudden there, you're like, we <laughs> I'm, I'm back to being who I am. Wow, I really got caught up in that fiction for a bit, right? Whereas before it was like, oh my god, it's all fiction, and it's this massive, astonishing insight. And then after a while, you're just like, yeah, and I, I remember that I'm good to go. And and it's not this big jarring experience because you've been there. And this is often why meditation can be useful to people if they have a very busy lifestyle is that it provides you that North Star, reminds you of what it is you can experience. It reminds you there's other options rather than just the hectic pace that you're on. And that's the whole point of of those experiences is to give yourself some context, right? If you're always running, if you're always thinking you are an identity, the idea that you, you can live free of that doesn't make any sense until you've experienced it to some degree which is why i always recommend people go for walks or people question their narratives or question who they think they are because at least then they'll have a moment of oh that's not real and then that leads them to want to experience that more but you it, without the experience it's all conceptual which is often questions that, that that i get from people and we'll get to that next i've asked my question it's your turn.
0: Um... This is from a Instagram Q&A. This is in regards to enlightenment, and I'm not 100% sure, uh, but I'll just read the question. How much enlightenment coaching do you need before you can go on your own? So I think there's a lot to unpack in this question, quite (laughs) frankly. So how much enlightenment coaching do you need to go on your own? So like, there's so many parts to this. I think enlightenment in itself talking about that enlightenment coaching, whatever that is, and going out on your own to be an enlightenment coach or to become enlightened on your own without a coach. Um, but we can just talk about it because I think we could probably spend a whole episode talking about this question, but, um, yeah, I mean, this goes, we've talked about this many times, the idea of enlightenment, of being this sort of destination, this future place that, you know, you have to put work in and you have to get coached on to get there. And there's people out there who, you know, they're enlightened so they can teach you how to be enlightened. Be and experts. at the end of, <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> uh, yeah, that charged 500 an hour and, <laughs> and you know, but anyway, um, yeah. So to start, the idea of enlightenment is nothing more than a concept that we have created. And, you know, there are, I think there's understandings people equate to that, but it's this sort of journey that people think of that they, you know, go through spiritual practices and eventually they end up one day at enlightenment. Like they're on this Rainbow, and it's like the yeah, it's like the pot of gold. Do I take a right or a left at this street? And it's like, enlightenment's that way. And it's like, so at the end of the day, I don't even like using the word enlightenment, but it's, I think it's the understanding, understanding that there is nowhere to get, there is no destination to achieve. And as long as you think there is a destination to achieve you will always miss it because the idea of having a destination goes directly against the way that people explain you know this made up idea of enlightenment to be understanding that it's here now always it's just the i think if 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 it's anything it's the understanding that there is nothing outside of here and now And it's the understanding that there is no place to get to, and there is no enlightenment and there is no, you know, peak that you need to continue working towards or get coached on in any way and that it is here and now always. So if you go on this massive journey to get to a point where you find enlightenment, become enlightened... (sighs) it's, it's, you can't even describe it. Even if that were the case that there was a journey and there was a point, it's a moment at also like, so like that idea of enlightenment is one moment you're like, Oh, you know, my ego is dead and I am enlightened. And then it's like, so three seconds ago, your ego was dead and you were enlightened. But what about now? It's like, well, now I'm gonna hold on to that idea for the rest of my life. And I'm gonna say that I had an ego death and that I, I am enlightened and I'm gonna to work to get back to that point for the rest of my life. And it's like, that point is here now. It isn't a point that you reached at one point, it's always now. And that's the simple beauty of it that again, we've talked about you know 10 to 20 times is that it is always here now. You can never miss it because it's always where you are, it's what you are at the end of the day. So that's my initial spiel, but. <laughs>
1: that's really good. I, I love that. It's funny. I had a, I had somebody respond to me recently. I did a video about ego deaths, just saying that it's kind of an inaccurate description because it implies finality that all of a sudden your ego is just gone because you've made this one choice to kill it. And then that's it. You're good for the rest of your life. And that's not how it goes. Cause of course your ego is the perception of division. It's just how much you commit to that perception as truth that causes all of your distortion. So I just thought it was really interesting that basically the person was saying that, um, try DMT and then tell me there's no ego death. And that's the danger of having that one moment where your ego slips aside and then assuming you're good. So my response was, I'm assuming you're not on it when you're writing this comment. Because everything you just said was egotistical, right? I achieved it in the past. All of that is ego right and, and then that's the point is it it's not the concept it's not the final end end result it's not an achievement that you can put up on your wall right it's none of that and, and I, I just want to share two stories in response to your to uh, the question and your answer that i've always felt to be very useful um one is there was well they're both about students who were you know, fairly um smart and intelligent and got the concepts but were having problems letting go Enough to realize the truth. And one, one student goes to his Zen master and says, "You know, I've studied everything. I've read through all of the scrolls. I've read through all. Of, all of, I've studied under multiple masters. I'm just not getting it. What is the secret to enlightenment?" And rather than respond, the master just turns around and on a piece of paper on the wall writes, "Attention." The student says, "That's it. That's all you're going to give me." What is that? What does that mean? What does attention mean? The teacher writes, "Attention." attention. Students doesn't understand. He's like, I, this isn't saying anything to me. And he writes it again, attention, <laughs> attention, attention. He's like, what does that mean? He's like, attention is attention. There's nothing else to say, pay attention, right? Because in paying attention, you're not thinking about yourself. You're in the moment. It's what's real, right? So on the one hand, how much coaching do you need to, to achieve enlightenment? Not at all right? Some would say, oh, you need to meet meet an enlightened master, but they're forgetting that the first enlightened master didn't have a master to work from, right? So if that's possible for them, it's possible for you. It really just comes down to attention and secondly, priority, which is why I want to touch on this second story, which I'm pretty sure I've told before, but I'm going to say it again because it's important. There was another student, also very talented, went to to another master and said the same thing. I don't get it. I'm not understanding this. I study all the time. You know, I talk to other students. I talk to other masters. I'm just not getting it. Show me the secrets to enlightenment. Teach me the final lesson, as it were. So the master says, well, let's go for a walk. Brings him down to the river and he says, look there, there, through the water at the bottom of the river. Look at the rocks. Student student leans down. He's like, yeah. He's like, look closer. Gets down to the water. Master takes his head and pushes it underneath the water and he holds him there. Dude's just frantically sputtering and trying to get up out of the water. Finally, he lets him up <gasps> He breathed and breathes for air. The master says, when you want enlightenment as much as you wanted that breath, you'll have it. And that's it. It's attention and priority. How much are you tired of your conflict? How much are you tired of suffering? How much are you tired of the world you know and the things that you think you know and all of the overcommitment that goes with that? That's really all it comes down to. There is nothing else. Everything else is just pageantry. It's all just, it's just a show all the enlightened, like the bells and the robes and the, and the incense and all of that. It's all for nothing. It comes from within. It comes from you. If you're tired of experiencing the division that you perpetuate, that's where it starts because then it comes from you. It's attention, right? And it's priority. Everything else just peels away over time. Just keep going but yeah. And if you can find people to talk about, it will help, but be careful who you lean on for answers because the answers that they give you are theirs. They won't work the same for you.
0: Yeah, certainly. I like the uh, part about priorities. That's interesting because I think it was the last podcast episode I made back in July before I had that realization that I'm not Andrew. And I called it, um, it was something that was sort of you know, helping me cope with stuff was using figuring out your ultimate priority, like your priority above all else. And I talked for mine, it was being present and uh, reducing stress. So it was like, and I, the way I explained it and it seemed to resonate with a lot of people um, was that, you know, any sort of situation that you may get stressed and worked up about, like there's a reason That you're getting stressed and worked up about it because you're prioritizing, say, for example, you know, you have an interview for a job coming up. So you're prioritizing getting that job over anything else in your life, essentially, because you are getting stressed and worked up about it and, and focusing on that future sort of result. And I was talking about the idea of ultimate priorities being like if your ultimate priority is staying present, you're that is your priority over doing well on an interview, over getting a good job over making a lot of money over having, you know, a successful career in the eyes of the world, like above all of those things. So through everything you do, checking that. And then when it comes to stress, realizing that, you know, I would rather live a stress free life than, you know, do well on an interview, do well on a presentation, because when you do put weight on those things and you do think of those as your sort of priority, you kind of lose that, you know, those ultimate priorities and you get lost in this idea of achievement and thinking that that's what you need to accomplish. So when you are able to have those sorts of priorities, you know, staying present, reducing stress, then it's like, those are what you focus on. And then everything else kind of like Drizzles down from that to a degree. And then typically, you know, you end up doing better on those things because you are staying present and you're not focused on outcome. And going back to, you know, the analogy and example that you talk about a lot with the archer, you know, having one eye on the target and one eye on, you know, hitting it or or on the shooting of it. And it's like when you have one eye on the outcome, you're not able to fully do what you're doing in that moment, whether it be a presentation, interview, test or anything like that. So when you prioritize, like you mentioned, you know, prioritize that idea of enlightenment, whatever, even if it is made up, when that is your priority, it overcomes any sorts of, you know, accomplishment of anything. And then it's the doing itself. It's the here and now is where you are always. And it's like, that is as close as you can probably get to any idea of enlightenment It's just understanding that here and now is, is it, and it always has been, and it always will be. And that's who you are. And that's the only thing you'll ever be. And there's nothing more that you have to do. Like we get caught up in thinking that we have to do more or be more. It's like, you can't, it's impossible. And it's, it's futile to even try.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just look at the word enlightenment, however you want to take it, whether you want to take it as lightening the load, right, or brightening up the the environment. Either way, you're dispelling confusion, which is why anybody who's enlightenment will tell you there is no such thing as enlightenment, right? But it's the concept that drives us first. Like, there's a lot of people who will be like, yeah, I want to get to enlightenment. I want to achieve that. And that's great. That's really good. In the same way that uh, the uh, the Sufis want to uh, connect to God through abandoning their want right but there's that catch-22 you have to abandon wanting to meet god as well right and so it it just comes down to eventually chasing enlightenment it's the story of the satori and the woodcutter that we talked about in a previous uh, episode you have to stop chasing it right eventually when you get close enough to realizing what it is you're doing you realize there's nowhere to go there's nothing to chase there is nothing left to attain But it's one thing to say that, and a lot of people do say that, and it's another thing to recognize that genuinely, which is ultimately the point of all of this, right? And nobody, anybody who comes to you and says, I am an enlightened master, they're not, right? Because they're still telling you a story. They're still telling you the story they need to tell themselves. Anybody comes up to you and doesn't tell you anything about themselves at all, and they just want to listen to you as you go through your journey, that person's closer to it than any so-called enlightened master ever, right? Because at least they're paying attention to you. Even your friend you mentioned earlier, who's an atheist. Atheists are closer to God than most believers, right? Because they're not creating a fiction between them and God. They just have a fiction of them to deal with. That's pretty much it, right? It's not like there's two fictions suddenly having to come together. There's just the one that they have to kind of let go of, right? So yeah, it's it's, it's kind of funny that way. Uh, I'm going to move on to my next question, because otherwise we're going to keep talking. Um, What do you think about the uprise of veganism and is it justifiable to eat animal products if it's not a necessity in your individual life? So for example, you can healthily and financially afford to consume only plant-based food products. What is your perspective of that? Should you be a vegan if you can afford to do so, if you can healthily do so, or do you think that it's really up to the person?
0: Um. Yeah, I mean, so I've never really been driven to have any desire to be vegan or vegetarian or anything like that i think very much is up to the person um in my opinion and i was actually thinking about this cuz i wanted to bring this up again i know we've talked about like we've touched on this topic before but i do see like the perspective on the other side of people where it's like if you see yourself as everything then it's like, I I see where that comes from in like, not wanting to kill yourself in that sense. But yeah, I, I don't know if I have like a great reason or argument as to why I feel like they're just, it's like in practice with veganism and And that stuff, what I see is like sort of a high and mighty type attitude, in that, like, you know, I'm better because I don't do that and you do. And I always have found that, I always find that interesting in everything when it's like there's a certain situation that plays out in a certain way that it doesn't have to, but it usually does. In that way. And so I don't know if I have a great reason as to why I think it doesn't make sense. It just never has really occurred to me. I don't, I don't know, like, I don't see an issue with eating food that isn't human, but it's also like, where, why, where is the line then? Because like, I'm not eating humans also so it's like is it is it like a consciousness thing where if you're if it's not self-conscious then it should be edible like i don't know i have some questions myself is what i'm trying to say um so i don't know if i have a great answer but i'm very curious of your perspective but long long story short i've never really thought about like being vegan or vegetarian um i've it's just Always been a part of my life eating meat. I don't eat as much red meat just because it was harder to digest. I was finding, and I would always like not feel great afterwards. But yeah, I, I eat meat pretty much every day. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's fair. I've I've uh, I've had a great many years to think about this. Um, a lot of people have brought this to my attention, and I went through it numerous times because, of course the realization, the genuine recognition that everybody is an extension of you requires you to, to re, uh, reanalyze the amount of harm that you're causing to yourself, which we've talked about many times. Um, I don't see any difference between humans and animals, regardless, then again, I don't see any difference between humans and plants, um, except of course, how they can biologically express themselves and, and, and the experience that they can have as a result of the form that they take. To me, it's all just awareness, it's all, it's all life. But on that token, life has always consumed life in order for life to continue because life is not separate, right? So when the lion takes down a gazelle, the lion and the gazelle are part of the same goddamn picture, right? And they, they look at the Lion King as a part of the circle of life, right? I'm not gonna break into song, but the whole point is that you know, as things die, they go into the ground, the ground feeds the rest of the things. And then those things feed the rest of the things and it just keeps going circle, it, it, full circle. And so that's true. Um, usually when we have an aversion to animals dying, that, that aversion also comes down to our aversion to us dying, right, so the more I'm afraid of death, the more I'm afraid of pain, the more, more opinion I have about the process of dying, or the inevitability, the inevitability of me going into the ground, as it were, the more issue I'm going to have with the idea of other beings dying and going into the ground, because I lack that perspective that I'm not me, I'm not, just the individual that I'm choosing to attach myself to, right? So that that changes my perspective slightly. There's also this uh, this tendency in the vegan community to think that the way we treat animals is like the biggest problem that we have on this planet. And I'm not going to say it's not a huge problem. If you look at factory farms, if you look at the way animals are treated and and the shit that's pumped into them repeatedly to make them larger products to sell, the fact that they're not allowed to roam, live, have an existence at all. I mean, that's That's terrible. And it's brutal. And it's the product of a profit based economy that's always going to cut corners and always going to sacrifice the integrity and and the dignity of of people and animals alike. So that is the problem with that system. Um, That's not a problem with eating meat. That's a problem with the way the production of meat has has been adopted by this society in order to just keep pushing it out as a product. I mean, you can tell just by the amount of food. If it doesn't get sold, it just gets chucked out. That's it. And the same is true for meat products, right? Like if they, they produce a, lot, a large amount of meat for large uh, grocery stores to buy on mass, that order is made regardless of what happens to the meat, regardless of people buy it. So all of those animals were slaughtered on the idea that somebody might buy their their, their, dead, their dead bodies. That's pointless. That doesn't make any sense because then we're just encouraging people to eat as much as possible to keep up with the demand to keep the economy going. And so now you have people eating four or five cheeseburgers rather than the one that they might need, right? So th- that all kind of goes into that. So for me, uh, I, I guess the perspective is, is that I don't, I don't support factory farms. I don't support cruelty to animals for the sake of business. But I grew up around farms. I, I think I was four years old the first time I saw a chicken have its, head, its neck snapped. So that way we could eat that chicken, Okay. So that was my jarring introduction to the nature of of reality. And and so I grew up realizing that that's just how life worked. But on the other hand, those chickens, the cows, the animals had a life. They lived on a farm where they could actually try, like move around and live and exist. And they had a a rich full life. They weren't just uh, stuffed into a container and shipped on a truck in the smallest possible space to save on money, right? Like there was a difference. There was some um, respect given to the animals. The same with uh, Native American or Indigenous uh, practices of hunting. They would say thank you after the hunt, after killing the animal, right? It would be thank you for giving your, your, your soul, your spirit to the rest of us to survive because there was a recognition there is no separation. Indigenous belief actually would go so far as to say that you would take on some of the traits of the animal that you were eating. Right. Which they're finding scientifically to not necessarily be too far off the off the the mark, because there is, in fact, a transference of energy. There is, in fact, a transference that happens there. Our physiology does get affected, though it's not as cut and dry as the spirit has gone within you. But there is some truth to that. And so all of that in mind, as with everything, everything's gray area. I mean, I'm not going to say don't eat meat and I'm not going to say just become a vegan because it's really up to you. You can do whatever you want. If you can afford to just be a vegan and you prefer uh, that diet, and that is the only way for you to minimize uh, your use of factory farms or or the industry that drives the cruelty of animals, do that. Um, If you are in in a position like I am, where I live on an island that has a great many smaller family farms and and, um, a local fishing industry, you can eat meat if you know where that meat is coming from. If If you can, honestly say that you support the production of that meat or wherever it comes from, you know, and, and the treatment of the animals, more importantly, and go ahead and do that. There is no, there is no right answer one way or another, though. I will admit, I think the funniest reason I've ever heard uh, from a friend for being a vegan wasn't necessarily because she wanted to save animals, but because she really hated plants.
0: That's pretty funny. (laughs) Yeah. I've never, I've never heard that perspective there. (laughs) But yeah, it is uh, it is interesting, just I don't know, in what I see in, in reality of it, it, it comes with a lot of judgment and egotism along with the uh, beliefs of it. And I, I totally understand where people come from, who you know don't because that industry is so fucked up with the factories and I've you know driven past. I've done a lot of road trips through Middle America and driven past some of those and it is a tough, tough scene for sure. Um, but yeah, so.
1: But the act of eating meat in itself, totally different argument. And, and I I will, I will die by that. I will die on that hill, that the cruelty of animals that is perpetuated by our system is a different argument than whether or not you should eat meat, right? There are considerations there. I'm all for overthrowing that system, not necessarily down with never eating meat again, because I am meat right? Something's going to eat me. Or if it could, it would. I've often said that, right? Like if, if my situation was reversed, if I was in nature and some animal was hungry and I was by myself, I wouldn't fault it for wanting to eat me, right? That's just its nature. That's part of how it lives. That that's the existence that it was born into. And so it's important to keep that in mind. I, I think, um, your question.
0: All right. Let's see. Uh, All right. This is another little bit of a open-ended one uh, related to time. Greetings. I'm feeling I'm running out of time. How can I manage it? Thanks. So I think there is a lot (laughs) there that, and I I don't think it's uncommon to feel like that. And I think a lot of that stems from societal pressures and certain ideals to live up to and the sort of blueprint that we have for life. I'm not sure. Yeah. I've I've no idea how old I can't tell, you know, how old or young this person is, but the idea of, you know, running out of time or feeling like you need to have certain things accomplished by a certain age, I've actually found something I've been thinking of with the idea of, you know, like the whole blueprint of graduating school by 22, you know, having a family by 30 and whatever. And I understand for people who want to have a family, there's certain, you know, biological clocks involved, but outside of that, for the most part, I was thinking of it from the sort of flipped perspective of how old people live. So if you think of your life, you know, someone could live to be 90 versus 70, and potentially someone who has a lot less stress throughout their 15, 20s, 30s may have the opportunity to live longer and still be quite functional at an older age. So in that sense, if you live to be 90, then when you're 40, you have 50 years left versus if you live to be 70, when you're 20, you have 50 years left. And yet we have insane amount of judgments and perceptions on people who maybe are at a similar stage in life when they're 20 versus 40. Someone who, you know, starts a company, startup, whatever, when they're 20, they're like a kid genius and make a million dollars versus some is like this crazy thing. Like they've made it, they're successful versus when you're 40, if you do the same thing, it's like, oh, whatever. Or just people aren't, as patient with things and understand like the, everyone tries to have, you know, the get rich quick thing. And, and there are ways, if you're more patient, it's not nearly as difficult to, you know, build some semblance of wealth and you don't, and the feeling that you're running out of time is all just perception of your situation and how other people are perceiving your situation. And I find for the most part, people aren't perceiving other people's situations very much they're not looking at you and being like you're running out of time it's all inside of your own mind the feelings of running out of time and thinking that you have to you know accomplish certain things by a certain age like those are all made up constructs and ideas that our society has developed and people have bought into and now we sort of have this general blueprint That I mentioned. So I think being able to take a step back and look at your situation from a third person perspective, or just realize that you are the awareness of what is, and then you don't have to worry about the third person perspective, but understanding that, you know, the things that you're striving for questioning those things as well, like the things that you are running out of time for again it's hard to know exactly what this is whether you know if they're talking about dying or if they're talking about accomplishing something but i think understanding that there's nothing to experience beyond right now like there is nothing to do outside of right now so if there are things you want to work on or, or do or accomplish like doing them now is the only time and place you can, here and now is the only time and place you can ever do them. So understanding that it's like time sort of gets removed from the equation and then there's no time to run out of because time isn't there anymore. It's an illusion to begin with and understanding that I think can help at least ease those feelings despite the fact, as I mentioned, that they're Primarily 99.9% of the time, complete, if not 100% of the time, completely made up based on societal pressures, perceptions, and constructs.
1: Absolutely. Well, and I think that um, our collective belief in science and, and control uh, works against us to some degree because as we've been able to exercise more control medically over death, um, our lifespan has increased. And now we have this idea that, well, the average lifespan is you know, 70 to 80 years old. And so we have almost this expectation that we're gonna live to 70 or 80 years old, right? And so it's like, oh, I feel like I'm running out of time. It's like, you could die tomorrow. You could leave your house today and die, right? And so it comes down to if that were to happen, and it may, are you good with it? And if not, that's what you have to work on. That should be your priority because it's all well and good to think when I get to 50, I'm going to have this much money unless you never get to 50, in which case you just pissed away all of the moments that you did have for some date that's never going to happen. Right? So it's it's a balance as with everything, right? It, it just comes down to, I'm going to plan for the future as best I can, but I'm not going to assume it's going to happen the way I, I think it will. I'm not going to assume that everything's going to lay out the way I think it will in my mind or the way other people have told me because nothing in life does work out that way everything is gray area everything is unknown right so if you think that you're if you always feel like you're running out of time it's because you're too focused on time right That that's pretty much it you're just dwelling on how much you have left and you're dwelling on a fiction that you ultimately don't know so as long as you have here and now you still have time in which case Work on that. Enjoy that to the best of your ability. That will ultimately, that practice will help you feel not only like you have more time, but like you're eternal. And and that that does happen over time. But it is <laughs> over time. It does happen now. Um, but it is a process of practicing being here now to the point where you realize that your perception of time isn't isn't what you think it is, right? And and you're focused on it specifically for a
0: sense of certainty. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think, yeah. And it's all about balance like that. I feel like I get a lot of questions about, you know, oh, like live present, like, well, I'll just stop saving money and give all my money away. And, oh, I'm homeless. Thanks a lot. And I'm like, oh my God, like give me a break. But at the same time, like, I understand people like, you know, taking things to extremes and whatnot. And I think it's important to realize that you can plan here now, like, you know, the difference between worrying and planning, it's like worrying is an action that you're taking here and now. And it's not that you have to put all of your weight on it and think and take it as truth necessarily, but through doing it, Having some preparation, giving yourself a destination or not a destination, but a path or direction through the planning, but then not taking it seriously and understanding that the odds of it actually playing out exactly like you planned are essentially zero and being okay with that. And so between balancing that and then on the worry side of it is like worrying is just you're not accomplishing, it's, it's not accomplishing anything and it's all focused on existing in the future. It's not something you're doing well, it is something you're doing now, but it's not like the action that planning is necessarily. It's like there is a action oriented aspect to it versus a, I don't know, m- almost mindless passive like I think plan so like okay, so it's like planning is your mind is the servant and worrying is your mind is the master. So like planning, you are using your mind as a tool because as humans, it is a incredible tool that we have, the ability to perceive the past and the future. It is, but it is a tool. And most people that I have interacted with, it is their master. And the question you have to ask yourself is, if I wanted to stop thinking and worrying, could I? And if the answer is no, then it's your master. And that's where, you know, your attention should, well, your attention can just be here now. And then it it all, you know, goes away for the, or at least begins to get better anyway. But, you know, if if that is where it is, where you can't necessarily turn it off, then that is something to work on.
1: Now, that's interesting. It just dawned on me that It's done on me before, but it's a good way to come at it this time. The more you're focused on your character, the more you're focused on on your idea of yourself, the more you're focused on your narrative. And the narrative always exists in time. Yes. So the the two go together. That was an interesting insight. I like that one. Uh, Okay, next question. Of course, this one is one I've been looking forward to getting to because it's another one about religion how does one get over religious trauma, specifically feeling guilty or fearful when leaving a belief system?
0: Mm. <laughs> uh, right. Um, I feel like my, like in my situation, which is pretty much all I can speak to, um, it wasn't necessarily like an overnight thing. It was very much a process and it started with like I still was nominally Catholic and this is, it's relatively recent for me. It's been probably progressing since halfway through college. So I don't know, five years it's been processing. And, and I think it started out with, I just, you know, half of the stuff I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't believe that part of it. And I was still like the last part was believing in God and like a higher power and eventually it was just like less and less made any sense. And I was like, all right, I I believe, you know, like 10% of what they're talking about. Like, why am I still identified as, you know, Catholic? So then that kind of went away. And then I still believed in God, but I would question it. Like, you know, what's really going on. And then, and then I got to a point where I was fully like sort of out of that. And I think in my experience, it hasn't been as much where people tell me that I should think differently or that I should be afraid, but it's that they don't like when I bring it up. And I I just don't as much because it's quite frankly, just not worth when we're talking about like stress and, and stuff like that. It's just not worth my energy to try and convince anyone. And we can argue whether that's even possible anyway, but um yeah, I think, I, think ha- I mean, having a place like, you know, our Discord and Patreon and people that you can talk to about it, places you can go to talk about things. Like I know with my situation, people close to me still being involved, like being able to talk about it on a podcast every week and, and kind of talk through belief systems and all of that can be very helpful. So I think having people that you can talk to who are in a similar boat who kind of have been on the other side. And and that can be super helpful in and of itself. Uh, In terms of, I don't, I don't know if I have a great perspective on if you're in a situation where people are like more hostile about it. I think maybe Ray may have a little bit more experience, just like, just because you've been through it longer. And I don't know but possibly because I feel like I don't have that much where I, I was always growing up in an environment that it was religious, but but it wasn't like crazy religious. It was like everyone was kind of like, yeah, we're going to like hold on to it because we're scared of, of death, but like we're not, you know, pushing it on anyone. We're, we're, you know, we used to go to mass like a couple times a year. And now it's like just Christmas and Easter. And I was even like, do we really like it's the same thing every year like we could just you know go to dinner a little earlier or something <laughs> and i didn't actually say that but i was thinking it cuz i know that wouldn't be received well um but yeah so i'll, I'll let ray speak to this as well now
1: <laughs> that's kind of funny it's like i'm just going to assume ray has pissed off more people uh, <laughs> it's just uh, so oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one um this one actually resonates pretty pretty strongly with me because Growing up, I, I didn't have uh, much of a support. I, w- I didn't have parents. You know, I was always kind of. I felt like I didn't have any value or worth, and, and so religion was um, my first life preserver. It was the thing that I, I reached to for that sense of, of certainty and security, and it meant a lot to me. I was, I was what you would, would you, what you would call a devout Christian. I, I really was. I, I, I read the Bible. I, I pray. I prayed. I did the rosary. I did the whole thing, and. Uh, and it was exactly because of that, that my rejection of Christianity later on was so strong was because I was such a devout believer only to find all of those, um, those lessons within Christianity while they sound pleasant and while they, they offer you some sense of certainty and purpose and, and idea of who you are actually just get you farther and farther from the truth. They take you and farther, farther and farther down a road of, of, um, being self-critical where... You're never going to meet God. You're never going to feel worthy. You're never going to, unless, of course, you just, you know, continue to tell yourself, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, because you're never going to meet Jesus. And so you're never actually going to have him tell you, I love you. You're doing great. So you're always just telling yourself a narrative, right? And so I I leaned really hard on that. And when I came out of it, there was a lot of, of leftover programming. Let's just say that. And I dealt with that probably into my late 20s if i'm honest about it and it's just because the idea of god was so um solid for me it was so pivotal to me everything in my life was was built around this idea that there's a god and so it took me a while once i realized that oh that god's a concept actually what they're pointing at is is a state of being didn't understand that at all um so i would immediately go oh maybe i shouldn't be questioning these things i actually had a friend say to me do you think maybe there are certain things we're not meant to question, which just set me off? I'm like, no, (laughs) obviously if I'm, if I can do it, I'm meant to do it. Right. And so that was kind of the the point there, but all throughout that process of of recognizing that the narrative wasn't the truth, that the the religion itself was um, the result of people misunderstanding and investing in their ego more than anything to do with God. um, The more I I started to hear this fear of, Oh, you're going to go to hell you know, God's judging you. What if you're, you're leaving the path? What if you're wrong? What if when you die, you really are going to go? And so all of the, this old programming kept popping up and it sounded very much just like a horde of screaming demons behind me, just wanting my attention. Just pay attention to these thoughts, right? Because they had always been there, but that's what it is. It's programming. It's habitual thought. That's all it is. It's the fact that it was some of your earliest programming, which is even, hard, even harder to let go of because you were a child and this stuff was drilled into you, or at least it was in my case. And so it becomes foundational to everything else you perceive, just like Andrew was saying earlier, right? It's one of those perspectives that alters everything else you do the perspective of a division between you and God. More importantly, the the perspective of of a gatekeeper in Jesus or anybody else, you know, that you have to go through to get to God. Like all of these things create a story about you as not being worthy, as not um, being uh, capable of connecting to God now, that you are a sinner. And, And so as you start to question that, as you start to look more into the Bible, where the stories came from, what actually happened to the people who first told those stories, at the hands of the people who then wrote those stories down, when you start looking into, well, uh, we have a question here about the book of Revelations. When you start looking into the origin of Revelation, you immediately start having questions. And so, as we said before the podcast, the reason most Christian people, the reason most religious people don't question, they don't look into the history, they don't look into, you know, where these things actually came from, they don't look, they'll just tell you it's the word of God and leave it at that is because as soon as you do start looking into it, as soon as you start questioning it, it starts to fall apart. It starts to become harder and harder and harder to give it credibility. And so that's, that's part of that process. The other part of that process is recognizing it yourself, is, is recognizing that the farther you get from the dogma, the farther you get away from the character that they're telling you you are, the closer you're getting to the state of mind of people who actually managed to achieve the experience of God, that the Bible was based on. You'll have ears to hear, you'll have eyes to perceive, rather than just looking at other people's misinterpretations based on their own ego and based on their own need for control. It's one thing I've always found funny about Christianity, and I've said it before, is that Christians, more than following Jesus, follow the apostles that didn't understand Jesus. I always find that really interesting. It's like, oh, if we quote Matthew, it's like, right, I thought you were a Christian. Aren't we talking about Jesus? Right. And if we look at just the things that Jesus said, most of Christianity doesn't line up with it. Right. So it really just comes down to just keep questioning and that trauma will start to go away. But in the case, and as Andrew said, sometimes you're in a toxic environment and the people around you are not going to enjoy these questions. Choose your battles. Right. On the one hand, you don't need to prove anything to them if you're recognizing it yourself. And as you are recognizing it yourself, you will find that they are going to distance themselves from you almost naturally. Oil and water. It's just because you're you're not you're not in a state of mind that makes them comfortable with their narrative anymore. As soon as you start questioning it, you start to exclude yourself from that that club. Right. And which is why it's uh, it's often a an aggressive response to questioning. It's often, you know, a hostile reaction to your questioning. And it's not because you shouldn't question. It's because they depend on you not questioning in order for them to sustain the false sense of security that they have, right? In which case, let those people go. It doesn't have to. And one more warning, and this is super important, is that it is just as easy to get caught up in being a Christian as it is to get get caught up in being an ex-Christian, right? You can, by just identity alone pitch yourself against the church against religion as a whole and that in itself is its own religion that is a problem right like i've had numerous people come to one of my videos from back in 2005 they're listening they're listening boom i mentioned jesus once they're like oh you mentioned jesus i'm out it's like wow i can see christianity really programmed you right meanwhile they're thinking oh it's just christians that are programmed no you're holding on to an idea too you are just as stuck on that concept, that you can't now look at the insight behind it, right, so there is nothing wrong with just not defining yourself, looking at all sources as, as possible, you know, ways to find insight, but you don't have to be against something, just don't use it, just don't do it, just don't be a Christian, that's enough, that's all you have to do, right, you don't have to try and take down the church, the church is going to fall apart on its own, right, you know the fruit by the tree that bears it, Right. And the fruit that comes out of the out of the Vatican has always been divisive out of religion as a whole will always continue to be based on the ego. It will always continue to divide you from the rest of reality. So just keep knowing that and the trauma will eventually fade and you will start causing some trauma for the people who don't want to let that go. You know, not intentionally, just because you are, in fact, enjoying your life, enjoying the realization of God which is unfortunately, and this is probably one of the saddest parts about being religion or being religious, you can't experience God. It's all hearsay, right? When you're religious, when you're a believer, all you've ever done is heard about God, heard about the experience of being connected, and you're following hearsay, where the alternative is to actually have the experience. And then all of that programming just stops making sense, and it becomes easier to shed it and and move on. But as with everything else, time and attention and priority, and it'll eventually change.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh it's pretty fascinating just how how interesting all of that is with with holding onto it and how quick people are to jump from a belief system to another belief system that they have just left, whether it's anti their past belief system or just you know cycling through another sort of belief system. Do you think that's part of like I don't know I don't want to say human nature, but kind of like wanting to hold on to something or do you think there's so much just fear within us all the time about you know people's fears of of death and they try and hold on to it or do you think they're just so tied to the idea and illusion of division that they almost need something to believe in in order to soothe the inevitable fears that come with feeling like you're divided
1: that's a really good question. I, I, um, I posted a video about this earlier last year and it was uh, just something that came to me as I was walking and talking to my wife. And it really, I think it comes down to this. The human brain evolved over time and created a frontal cortex, which is, gives us the ability to look at multiple um, scenarios. It gives us the ability to, to really conceptualize time, right? Conceptualize what could happen numerous stages or numerous points down the road. But our, our reptilian brain doesn't understand that. It doesn't understand that this new part of the brain can perceive things that aren't real. right? And so our reptilian brain, which is all fight or flight, suddenly perceives an identity, an idea of ourself. And it perceives it in the same way it perceives our body as us. So we have an idea of who we are. And our reptilian brain goes, oh, shit, that's you. I got to keep you alive. I got to keep you safe right? And so now our brain unknowingly is protecting the fiction of our identity because we think it's us, right? The brain doesn't understand that it can lie to itself. It doesn't understand it has two different, two different parts that are working entirely different. And so we have to, to kind of train ourselves to recognize that's a product of our brain, right? The idea that we are an idea, is something that our brain keeps trying to grasp onto. And it's only through recognizing that it's not the truth. And I mean this collectively. If we could get this into our schooling system, if we could actually make this a part of our culture, everything would change. Everything would change. But until we have the conversation that our brain is fooling us, we're going to continue to fall into this trap. It doesn't matter what it is, which is why I always find the atheist argument to be so interesting, right? Because normally the atheist argument is just, I don't know if there's a God or not. There's no proof, I'm gonna leave it at that, which is great because it's kind of open-ended, right? But sometimes the atheist argument is, there is no God, right? In which case, okay, so now you've just you've just identified, you just come up with an idea again that your brain is presenting you because you don't wanna believe in that fiction. So now you've created another assumption, you created another fiction to balance out that uncertainty. Just don't commit to it. That's all it is, that's where agnostics tend to be closer to the point than, than atheists. Agnostics will just say, I don't know, you know, could be, not even sure I have the right questions or the right answers for that, right? Like it's just, just look at it for what it is, right? But you no, know, it really just comes down to until we understand that our, our brain creates a reality that we experience, until we can understand that, that, that our brain will go, oh, here's a perception and everything that goes with it and we start to question that, we're always going to end up falling into, falling into illusions. We're always going to end up falling into, into distortion, not recognizing that it comes from us. And, and so this is why I've often said that you know uh, practices like um, meditation, zen, even being a Jedi, I mean, it's all really just comes down to self-awareness. What are you uh, investing in as a thought or as an identity or a narrative about yourself? And what reality is that creating? Because if you can come to terms with that, like, I'll give you an example. I'll go and I'll have a conversation with religious people. And in that conversation, it can get quite heated. At no point do I walk away from that going, yeah, you know, that defines me. That, that, that reflects on me as a value." it's just a conversation. It's just something that's happening, right? And the less committed I am to being any particular part in that conversation, the more easily I'm able to move around within that conversation to move with their perspectives to work with what they're saying and find other insights in that whereas if i'm just focusing on on my perspective there is no there is no god there is no jesus you know blah 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 i'm not going to catch anything from that conversation they're not going to catch anything because i'm just telling them they're wrong and trying to validate myself the entire damn time right so we're not going to grow as people and so i i think that that's probably the biggest thing it's just recognizing that We are illusion machines, right? Like our brain is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful. You can literally think to yourself right now, I'm going to go out this afternoon. What if I run into somebody on the street who's drunk and aggressive and then not leave your house because you're afraid of that happening? That's incredible. If you think about it, the placebo effect likewise is incredible. So we're just starting to to scratch the surface on a conversation conversation about exactly how powerful our consciousness is, about exactly how tricky our mind can be. But we're not having that conversation yet, right? Now we're talking about, like, God and the devil, right? <laughs> now we're talking about, you know, two different sides. It's like, no, there is no devil. The devil is just the perception that appears to be truth. The master of lies, the father of lies, right? It's just, it, it, the perception is never the truth. The perception is always just the perception and it may dictate the experience, but only so long as you're invested in it as truth, right? And so it, it really just, it's the one step process we always talk about, right? Self-awareness, that's pretty much it. Um, is it your question or mine?
0: Uh, I believe it's mine, right? That was, that was a Patreon question, yeah. Um, okay, last one from Instagram. Have you met the machine elves? So I think this is in relation to psychedelic. A lot of people, is that what this is talked about typically? Usually
1: ayahuasca, but it, it's uh, not the only drug for sure.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's, I don't know, maybe people will perceive that experience I had when I, you know, made that video about, you know, talking to God. And I talked about on, what was the last week? Last week's or the week before's episode um, of, you know, talking to God. And when I got to this place with them myself, it was, I saw these little, you know, cartoon characters and that could be, I think, similar to what people express as the machine elves. And, and so when I got there um, I've, I've already talked about this in a previous episode, but I'll just run through it again quick. Cause it's, I think related to the question. Um, I saw them and I was like, immediately I, I knew where I was without ever having been there, but also having been there. Um, And I was like, oh, so there's, there's a few of you. And that was because that was the first question, they immediately turned into one being. And that in itself, that experience just made it very clear to me. And then they went from one sort of blob being to, you know, a tree and then a few other shapes. And they were like, we are whatever you perceive us to be. We are everything and nothing just based on your perception of, of us or me or you know, whatever words you want to throw in there. But um, so yeah, that, that was my sort of experience, but it was very interesting. And I think I don't know, I haven't uh read or, or looked into the idea of the machine elves as much, but do you think that is a sort of realm that's similar to what I experience in a lot of ways that people sort of go through as as a sort of experience within yourself that's, you know, that is yourself. And it's just a, for whatever reason, that's how people perceive them. Like, I'm curious, why do you think people call them machine elves? That's just the most common way that what people have like experience them. Okay.
1: It, it is. And I've uh, ran across them um, a few times. It, it, it's really interesting because of course we've talked about awareness and all things within awareness has to exist somewhere at some point. Right, and and that's all one thing. So it's entirely possible that on some planet far, far away in a distant time and space, there are elves that managed to blend with machines and and whatnot, but the symbolism is what's interesting to me because every conversation I've ever had, conversation with the machine elves, has always been along the lines of our, our potential as a species. It's always been, this is what you're capable of. It's always been, if you can find balance, this is something you can become or reflect in yourself. And, and so what I find interesting about machine elves symbolism is that when we think about elves, typically we're looking at um, ancient beings with wisdom that live in alignment with nature. That is the entire mythology around elves. But machine elves have managed to use that knowledge with technology in balance. And so there's the symbolism of what we're capable of doing of finding that balance of, in fact, being these ancient beings. I mean, it just—it's because of the mythology of elves and everything that goes into that. Thanks, Tolkien. That—that—that um, that, that affects a lot of what we're experiencing for sure. Because somebody who's never read anything to do with elves would more than likely see them as something else, and which is often why you have people who have more of a Christian background seeing angels. Right, but it's all—it's all symbolism. It's all symbolism for for our awareness and what's possible. And then, of course, we we see. Uh, a possibility in our potential, and our brain comes up with a symbolic way to represent that possibility and allow us to communicate with that possibility within ourselves. And of of course, based on what what we have experienced, what we've looked at in the world, what, what we've absorbed as context, our brain creates a symbolic representation of that insight. And so we interact with that symbolic representation until you start questioning it too far in which case the symbolism falls apart and then you end up talking to something else entirely which is exactly what happened to you and has happened with me multiple times I mean to anybody who has in fact talked to uh, the, the, uh, the techno elves as it were just start asking them more questions you know aren't you just me and watch what they become because it changes it changes the flow but it is it's all symbolism it's really just all of us um, accessing parts of our awareness that we're not necessarily in a state of mind to understand without something to bridge the gap without something to act as kind of an intermediary between our state of mind and the state of mind that we're communicating with and so we come up with characters as a result of, as a result of that process
0: okay that yeah that makes sense yeah that's something that has become clear with some of my trips is just the perceptions and you're just you're able, and then just like when I'm when my eyes aren't closed and I'm seeing things here, it's just like very much peeled back and able to see things just more clearly without all of as many of my perceptions. But I think it it kind of seems like no matter what, there's going to be something that's still sort of there as your individual perception of things. And that's why you know, people, you know, when they have experiences like that and they have sorts of beliefs about things, that's what they see. They see it based on their perception. And I have, um, when I, uh, so another interesting story, um, kind of about, this is family related, but my little brother, when he was younger, um, like two, like apparently saw Jesus above um, our neighbor's house who had just passed away, but like, we didn't know they had passed away yet. They were like 85 or 90 and he was like a little baby. So, you know, my mom thought that was like, you know, the craziest thing ever. And it kind of like reaffirmed her beliefs in things like that. Uh, because how could, you know, a two-year-old say that? About- Must have been Jesus. Yeah. And so now hearing you know, remembering that it's like, that's just how it was perceived because of the stories and narratives that you've been told. It's like, oh, it has to be that. What else could it possibly be? And it's like, there's nothing saying that it has to be that except for your perceptions and the things that you have been taught to believe.
1: Yeah. So it comes down to what did he see? Right. And if the only way for him to translate what he was experiencing was the image of Jesus, which was the closest thing he had been taught that resembled that kind of energy or, or that kind of insight makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. Cause I think, I don't know exactly what was said. My mom could probably tell me, but I think it was something like, I see a bearded man above that house or something. And it's like, yeah. Oh Jesus.
1: Yeah. Well, and this is it, right? I mean, hallucinations or, or symbolism or visuals or whatever you want, visions. I mean, they're always, they've always they always been relied upon by, by, by mystics as well, right? Because there's symbolism and there's meaning behind that symbolism. But then again, you can't take the symbolism at face value because as soon as you do that, you've discounted everything behind it. And you go, like, no, no, it's just the symbol. It's like, well, whatever that symbol means to you, but you're not the person who had that vision. So it doesn't really matter, right? Speaking of symbolism, and actually this is a perfect segue into another supporter question. What do you think of the book of Revelations?
0: I don't know if I should start this one off. I think I may be able to chime in on certain things because I know almost I've not spent very much time looking into it at all. Like I was definitely it was part of my teachings growing up, I'm sure, like we read from a lot of different books and Sunday school. And I went to Catholic school for, from fifth to fifth grade through high school. Um, but yeah, specifically, I don't know if I can start this one off. <laughs> that's
1: fair. Um, I, I think it's important to recognize first that there's a lot of assumptions around the book of Revelation, specifically a, a, a lot of assumptions around the name John that's ascribed to the book of revelations. Most people don't go and look at the fact that that has nothing to do with John, any John that's in the new Testament whatsoever actually it's based on a guy named john the elder uh who lived in Asia minor about a hundred years after jesus was killed or rather about a hundred years approximately after jesus was killed and so he never met jesus didn't live anywhere near where jesus was from and at the time was uh, a christian who was in direct contradiction to rome and the expansion of rome and so the book of revelation starts off with uh there's like seven letters to the different churches Um, expressing the need for this this revitalization of Christianity, essentially expressing that, you know, there's this great evil coming and that we need to believe if we're going to stop this. And then it goes into this big symbolic um, story of of how that evil is going to rise and it goes according to many different stages. And the problem with the symbolism is that if you don't know the history, it all sounds terrifying right? Like monsters coming out of the sea and, and, and there's trumpets and there's angels and there's all kinds of stuff. And you're like, Jesus, what the hell's happening here? But if you actually go and you look at the symbolism and you look at the history at the time, specifically about John and his opposition to Rome, it makes perfect sense because he's talking specifically about the expansion of Rome and their response to Christianity. Like at one point he talks about, uh, I wrote this down, uh, the five fallen. Right in, Christ- in, in Revelations, they talk about the five fallen. What he is talking about are the five emperors of Rome that had died prior to that. Right, that was the point. He was talking about the Roman Empire, that's all he was talking about. Um, he refers to one who has been wounded, which was Nero. Nero was an emperor who had died a- of a wound, right? And so he's talking about the Roman Empire, he's talking about. Um, the, the beast rising from the sea and the number of the beast and all that he's talking about the, the, the money that was ascribed to rome right the dollars and or, or the coins that that were caesars he's talking about all of that and it's all about how if you're if you're a member of the of the roman empire you're essentially serving the beast that's all revelation was meant to be it was meant to be rhetoric and mythology to scare people into line and get them to to follow christianity rather than the dominant religion at the time you know it's the same reason that uh genesis for example uh focuses on a snake and a woman being the biggest problem it just happens to be that when genesis was written the only other dominant religion in the area worshipped snakes and women as their mythology as their symbolism for the religion and so how do you stomp out another religion you make their symbolism evil Right. And so everything just comes back down to marketing and public relations. And that's very much what the book of Revelations is. It's just it's just more fear tactic. It's just more more rhetoric in order to get people to agree with you. And, and when you read it, if you're not just a devout, like, oh, Jesus is coming and I'm righteous and everything else, it's very, it's very easy to see that the story is, is bunk. It doesn't mean anything. It really is just, it's pleasant imagery or it's interesting imagery at the very least, but there's nothing insightful in there. There's really nothing of use whatsoever because it's just a fever dream of somebody who is fanatical about their belief and their identity that went with it as they, because they were opposed to some other evil. And so there's a lot of ego that goes in that. And so everything in that story kind of reinforces that. That's my perspective of revelations, at least it, out of everything in the new Testament, It's the first thing that should get tossed on the
0: fire. So was it basically created as so when people read it, is it like kind of like a scary story about what's going to happen if you don't believe essentially is what I'm getting?
1: Oh, no, not just if you don't believe it's a story of the end times. It's a story about the apocalypse coming about what's happening on judgment day. Like it's, it's a story about how the end of the world will come about, how the dead will rise, how, how like, it's a terrifying story at the end of the day, man, like you could make a series of of movies out of it and people would go, that was a bit far-fetched, like it, it really is, it's a hell of a story, but none of it's real. It's all based on this fear of judgment and this idea that God judges itself and that some of us are living according to a plan and others are not and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's all just vilification and and identity and ego, but it's a hell of a story and it'll scare the crap out of anybody who doesn't look into where it came from.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I will, I will, uh, I don't know. Would you recommend I uh, look into it further? Just
1: Just for shits and giggles. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, like it's just, if you're sitting down at home one day and you got a cold beer or something, you want to get a good giggle, yeah, sure, <laughs> crack it open. But I mean, if you're looking into it for, for some, some sense of what's coming in the end times, don't waste your time. It, it's really not worth it. I mean, it, it's, it's really, it's just fiction. It, it's by far the least useful part of the New Testament, by far. And they just included it at the end because it really seals that deal. Right? Like, if you think about it, it, it really just hammers the point home, like, you know, Jesus, 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 love, 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 end of the world. If you don't follow us, you're going to die. Okay. Sold. Right? And that's pretty much what it comes down to. Right? Um, so try and try and consider that if you're reading Revelations, that, that it really is the end of a sales pitch. You know, always be closing is, is, is what we were taught in sales. And that's exactly what Revelations does.
0: Yeah, it's like, if the rest of this didn't convince you, hopefully this one drives at home. And I really do see that in a lot of ways that it's the fear that keeps people holding on. It's like that fear of like, Oh, what if you're, what if you're wrong? You know, you don't want all this bad shit to happen to you. And like, that's how I see it playing out. And people who, close to me who, you know, they don't really believe much of it, but they still hold on because they're afraid of, of, What if they're wrong or what if, you know, what if it is all correct? You know, you can't disprove it. It's like, give me a break.
1: (laughs) That's the funny part, right? It's like, we're going to come up with a story that's going to make you feel like, you know, what's going to happen after death and just happen to make you afraid that it's not going to happen or that something else is going to happen instead of just going, you know, there's no death. Life is eternal. That's why I always find it really interesting that in, in I think it was Mark, um, Jesus actually scolds his apostles. And he's like, you know, you're not listening. God is of the living, right? Like, there's no afterlife. You're not getting this, and and it's true. In the New Testament, Jesus never once refers to life after death. Like, he's never talking about an afterlife. What he's saying is that heaven is here now. That you can, you know, be at the right side of the Father, as it were, as you can be in alignment with with reality. Right, and yet Christianity has created this idea of like the afterlife and heaven and hell and all that, based on Dante's Inferno, which was written like a thousand years after the fact. Right, so it just became this romanticized idea that if you don't believe in us, you're going to burn. Right, there was um, oh god, there's this great documentary. It's called Jesus Camp. I definitely recommend that you watch it. And it, it was back uh, in the days when George Bush uh, Jr. was president. But essentially, it's about these children that go to this this camp to learn about Jesus and and of course, to learn how to support the Republican Party, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, I know. Um, But what I always found funny is just to drive it home, Jesus Camp, which is for children, is held at the Lake of Fire campsite. (laughs) Just to drive it home, (laughs) you're going to hell, right? But I definitely, I encourage you to watch that documentary and what they do to children. It's terrible. The children are terrified. They're so scared that they're going to go to hell if they don't pray to Jesus. I knew that very well. You know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. You know, I, or going to, you know, God help me if I die. Take my soul, right? That kind of thing. It's always on death, always, always, always. And I know when I was going into church, it's like you know, oh look, the stained glass. Ah, there's a guy bleeding and hanging on a cross. Like that's everywhere. It's like, do you really think that that was the image that he wanted to leave us with? Like, look at the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It was just about him dying. There was nothing about his passion. There was nothing about what he was talking about. It wasn't about the story. It was about how he died. Because Christians love to focus on that. They will focus on that rather than how he lived, what he said. What would Jesus do? Right? Well, let's talk about that. Let's not just talk about he would die. End of story. That, that kind of ruins the story, right? There's nowhere else to go with that.
0: Yeah, damn. Yeah, I still remember when I was younger because um, I went to, uh school I went to from fifth grade to ninth grade was very, very Catholic conservative and they would hold confession like monthly. And I remember everyone would like get all nervous going up to it and then everyone feels so good afterwards. And I remember thinking like, oh, I could die and I'm going straight to heaven. It was like the greatest feeling ever. Honestly, it was like, it was kind of equivalent to like how I feel most of the time now, but it was that sort of feeling of just like relief. Like I didn't, there's not really anything to be afraid of because, you know, I have nothing to lose. I'm going straight to heaven if I die right now, as long as I don't, you know, have a, you know, lustful thought in the meantime or something. As long as I don't (laughs) fuck it up. Yeah. Uh, which, which probably, you know, happened technically, I probably committed some sort of sin by the end of that day. So can't help it. really,
1: Right. Like that, that's the Christian thing. I always found kind of funny. It's like, you can't escape being a sinner. You can't, it doesn't matter how much you believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you convince other people to believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do because you were born of original sin. You were born from sex. How do you get out of that one? Yeah, Right? You can't. But that's why I always find the etymology of sin to be so interesting, right? It was never a hell-worthy trespass. It was just missing the point. That's all it means. It's missing the mark. It's literally the the etymology. It's an archery thing, just like everything else, right? (laughs) But it's just missing the mark, which all believers do. They all miss the point. So believers are sinners. So Christianity's got it right.
0: Very true. (laughs) uh all right should we move on next question uh let us see all right moving over to TikTok comments uh oh all right what are your thoughts on having children both personally and for others in general that is a interesting question um that i i mean do you want to start sure yeah. um <laughs>
1: I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having children i have a child myself but on the other hand i think that it's really important to, to recognize that it's very easy to get caught up in, in the societal narrative again that you won't be happy until you are married and have a child or two and a house and a white picket fence and the whole thing right um often people who who do have children as a result of checking off the list um don't have much of a relationship with those children as they get older, they get put into school, and then you see them for maybe two or three hours in the evening for 12 years of their life and then they move on, they go to university and, and so on and so forth. And so um it's so important if you are in that situation to change and grow as a person with your child, right? And, they, and this is so important as a parent. You can't be a parent and then just look down at your child like you're here to learn. I'm here to teach because Then you're not growing, and all your child is learning from or is learning from you is how to not grow. They're just learning how to stagnate, right? And so, um, if you can continue to question everything you think you are, if you can continue to question everything you think you know, if you can set yourself in a state of mind where you're at least willing to look at things afresh for the sake of of sharing an experience with another being then parenthood's probably going to be really good for you. You're going to really enjoy that, right? But if you're always just trying to self-validate, if you're always just trying to feel like you're a teacher or you're an authority or anything else, then you may as well just become the warden of a prison because you'll get more enjoyment out of that. Um, On the other token, we have over 7 billion people on the planet and um, a huge population problem. And that's not going to go away until we start taking... Children and the process of having children slightly more seriously. And and so, in my case, I had one child and then I had a vasectomy. That was it. I was done. No more children. And, And the reason is because I want to put as much time and attention into the one child that I do have. The other point is the fact that the world is very quickly going to start going through a scarcity issue. We're going to start, our children are going to start suffering through certain things that are the result of the way we live and the way that our parents lived before us. Um, that's going to be quite difficult. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind when you're considering whether or not to have children, that whether or not it's a good time for you today doesn't mean that it's going to be a good time for them 20 years from now. Right? And so that's something that you should consider. If you're going to have a child, have a child. If you're going to have two children, think about why you're having children, right? That, that's my, my only piece of advice. And it's not because there's anything wrong with having more than one child, but I think it's important to recognize that that, that uh, habit or, or that, I guess, practice of having numerous, numerous children is from a different era of humanity. I mean, back when we were clans, back when having a large family was necessary to help you till the farm and help support the, the, the crop and, and the, uh, the town or the village that you lived in, the community, having a large amount of people to help you and grow up, that was a big thing. But now, that's not the same thing. We're not plants anymore. And families don't necessarily stick together where blood is close it is stronger than water anymore because we don't have that familial need to, to support one another, to, to uh, stay in constant contact. And so things have changed incredibly, right? And so often you have people who have four or five children and those four or five children grow up and never talk to them again, right? And that wasn't the case. Two or 300 years ago when those four or five children would go on to continue on the family business or continue on um, supporting the community or to continue on on the farm or, or that kind of thing. So it's just important to recognize, you know, why are you having children? If you're doing it just to make your life better, it's probably not the best reason. If you're doing it because you are whole and complete in yourself and you want to share that with another being that's going to contribute to the world, awesome.
0: Have children. Yeah. It's funny going back to thinking about being at that, uh, Catholic school, like r- around middle school for myself, there were some families at that school with eight to 10 children. Like it was, it was wild. And so, yeah, so my perspective, um, I don't, I'm not having doing that right now. I'm not in that mindset. I don't think I'm even very close to it at the moment. I'm in no rush whatsoever. Um, I think I'll want to have at least a kid or two, but I'm not like, it's not this like thing that I have in my mind that I need to, you know, carry on my legacy through children or whatever the hell that is. And I think a lot of people do, as you mentioned, get caught up in the societal pressures of having kids. It's like, and this question, I don't know who asset who they are, what perspective they're coming from. But I think a lot of, it seems like in my experience, a lot of women feel that pressure and they feel it building as they get to a certain age. And I understand, you know, if you want to have kids, there is a sort of clock involved, certainly. But at the same time, it's like, I think a lot of, it's just a lot of like pressure. And it's, we've talked about so many times, like the societal norms and like the the bell curve of society and like most people have kids. So if you do something that's different, like whether it's not having kids or dyeing your hair green, like people, because it's not the norm, it stands out and it's like, or even just like not going to college as a kid, like just going to start working and to start making money. Cause you'd rather do that than go to school for four years. Like it's not that it's not a crazy thing at all, but because most people go to college, most people have children, most people don't dye their hair green. It's become these sorts of societal expectations where it's almost like you need a reason why you're doing it. And so it builds up this immense pressure and it just like, doesn't make much sense. Cause why does it matter to someone else if someone else has children? Why does it matter to someone else what someone else's hair color is? Why does it matter to someone else what someone else goes to school or what their job is or what they do on a day-to-day basis at all, or how they live their life or what they eat or any of these things? It just, it, it blows my mind all the time that people have opinions on these things of other people's lives. Um, so yeah, long story short for me, I'm in no rush. I'm not a hundred percent going to have a child, certainly not anytime soon. Like I have things that I want to do with my life. And I know that I'm very aware that having a child is a massive responsibility and I can't do some of the things that I want to do. I'm not going to be traveling around Europe or Southeast Asia with a baby on my back. <laughs> like You know, it's it's not something that I am ready for right now or, or want. And it's also like, I think, you know, at least historically speaking, statistically speaking, having you know, two parents in the home is more of a environment condu- conducive to being able to raise a child, you know, in, I don't know, I don't want to say better or worse, but like in a way that is more beneficial to them if they don't have that in their environment. So, you know, I'm, I don't even have a girlfriend right now. Like I'm not having a kid before I have at least a girlfriend or it's something very difficult. That yeah. That I want to, you know, be with for a long period of time. Like I'm going to take the pre- precautions until that day comes. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's my perspective.
1: I agree. I think that's a, that's a great perspective. I mean, at least it's honest to, to what you want to do and, and how you see your life. And I, I think that's, that's really important. And, and again, it's free of that societal expectation. Um, right. But it's funny because our society really does reject everything that's beyond the norm. And even though some movies start to touch on it, by the end of the movie, they just do a complete about face and end up going right back in the common narrative. There's a Christmas movie. Um, I can't stand it. I can't stand like the last 10 minutes of it. The rest of the movie's great. Um, It's called Four Christmases. It's with uh, Reese Witherspoon and, um, oh God, I can't remember his name is from Fred Claus. Uh, Anyway, the point is, is that it's called Four Christmases and it's about this couple who aren't married don't want children. And it starts off with them in a ballroom dancing class. And everybody who's there taking the class is getting married. And they're like, oh, when are you getting married? They're like, we're not, we just enjoy learning how to ballroom dance. You know, after this, we're gonna go play some squash and we're gonna do this. And it's like, oh, why aren't you married? And and so they go through all the reasons, like, why would we have to be, right? We're already together and we're already enjoying this. Why would we need to go through all that? And it makes all the people who are getting married super uncomfortable, right? (laughs) It's just because, and so the story, The movie goes on to show how they have to visit all of their family members in four different Christmases, right, in four different situations. And the whole movie is showing how this this need to consistently uh, be in the same narrative of people who are your family but are toxic doesn't really serve a purpose it doesn't really have anything to, it doesn't make a good Christmas let's just put it that way right so the movie's hilarious it goes all the way through to the last 10 minutes where all of a sudden the main character makes a point well I think we should get married and I think we should have children and then the, um, the other character's like oh I don't think that's the case and by the end of the movie they do they go right back to the common narrative it just does such a 180 about 10 minutes towards the end of the movie you're just like yeah this hit the executive's desk and they went, we can't have this wrap up in any other way. We need to make this wrap up in the common narrative. And it just ruins the movie. The movie's just shit for that reason. Like I, I this year, uh, my wife asked me, do you want to watch it? I'm like, no, hell no. <laughs> like it's just because it's such a letdown. Like you're laughing the whole way through. And then you're just like, oh, you gave in. You gave in, and then it even wraps up on them still trying to hide what they're doing from their families despite giving into the common narrative. So it's like, okay, you're, you're displaying the toxicity, but most people who are gonna watch that are gonna go, oh yeah, family, right? It's just always so funny. There's a line in there, it's like, you can't spell families without lies. I always thought that was funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because they have to, you know, the, the common narrative is watching the movie, so they're gonna have to fit it, and it's uh, Vince Vaughn is the other one yeah i have i have seen that it's been it's been a few years but yeah it's it's wild just how much of that we see all the time and and yeah i've just i don't know i i question all those things more and more and just how strange it is and like that's part of the reason why i want to do some shit that's like jarring to people because like you can't there's no good reason to judge someone for doing certain things. Like, so it's almost like, I just want to see what happens because there's no good argument for it. It's like, you know, if I change my hair color for some, like whatever reason, it's like, there are so many assumptions that go along with having a different color hair. And it's so interesting to me. And like the idea that I would, you know, get judged for it is like, It fascinates me. It doesn't, it's funny because I'm at the point where it it wouldn't make me insecure. It would just be like fascinating. And it would lead to some conversations that would probably be, you know, beneficial to some people where it's like, why, like, what part of this is, do you find uncomfortable and, and why? And what judgments are you? seeing in this situation and why and like have you ever questioned that and you know they question start questioning stuff like that they may start questioning more things but yeah it's, it's crazy how much of that narrative has infiltrated our existence
1: yeah absolutely what's normal and what's not right and how do we how do we judge and it's like what would i do that's basically what the question is and what would i do and would everybody agree with me and if that's the case you should be doing that right? Because that's what makes me feel better. Uh, Next question. This is a good one. Despite the things you teach resonating with me, I still find myself depressed and struggling to find joy in life. Now, it might be the effects of the pandemic, but how do I stop becoming the victim of a narrative? For example, I'm I'm depressed because of X.
0: So I think with feelings like that, they're It's almost what what I've found in my life is there's judgment on top of sort of expectations that you have. And, And there's when you have sorts of realizations about things or you start understanding things more, you almost like judge yourself for not feeling great all the time. And so when it comes to feelings of feeling depressed and feeling like you shouldn't feel depressed or. Desiring to feel happy or seeking happiness and feeling like happiness should be a direct byproduct of understanding these things. I think there's a few ways we can go with this question, but I think this is one of them of of having a sort of desire, like the desiring for a positive experience is a negative experience. The acceptance of a negative experience is a positive experience. That sort of paradox um, I think is applicable here. And what I find sometimes is like, I don't always feel great. Like there are times that I get self-judgmental. Like I, I feel anxious. I worry about things like, and the improvement that I've had in my life is not judging myself on top of those feelings for feeling those things. And so they happen. It's okay. I'm a human. It's, you know, part of our existence is feeling all sorts of things, but there's nothing saying that all those things that I feel are bad, except for my perception. They're just how I am perceiving those things. They are just feelings that I am having. And like the improvement that I mentioned is that I don't judge myself on top of feeling those things. And I think that the judgment of it or the resistance of it can exacerbate those feelings and kind of blow them out of proportion. And then, you know, while you're feeling them, but also leading up to when you're not feeling them, then all of a sudden you're getting anxious about feeling depressed or anxious about feeling anxious or worried about you know, the next time you start feeling that way. But if you understand that it's always okay to feel whatever you feel, then there's no, you know, additional layers on top of it. And it's just a surface level thing that you are able to observe and see it for what it is. And, you know, maybe dig into it a tiny bit and see, you know, what's sort of causing that, What's feelings of lack do you have? What you know, identity are you holding on to? What perceptions are you holding on to? Potentially is that you have given some semblance of truth to, like, have you questioned those beliefs as to what's leading to that in itself? Um, But I think understanding that no matter what you're feeling, it's okay to feel whether it's, you know, any of the net, you know, quote unquote negative emotions that we have stigmatized as being things we shouldn't feel. When you feel those understanding that it's okay to feel them in the moment, you know, having some deal of acceptance or surrender to those feelings, at least that helps me not like blow them out of proportion and then, you know, worry about when I'm gonna feel them next and things like that, it kind of cuts through that. So it's just what it is. And I find that those situations and feelings don't last nearly as long as they used to because I'm accepting of them when they do arise.
1: Yeah, responsibility, right? And that actually, I would, I would say that that might actually help a great deal. Um, in, in the case of the example, I'm, de- I'm depressed because of X. Uh, I would rephrase that in my own mind. of, I feel depressed because of my reaction to X. Um, and so, all of those things implies that it's not what it appears to be on face at face value, and that it's changeable, which is a very different perspective as opposed to being the victim of X, right? And, and so, this is super important right now, with the pandemic, with the um, the continued restrictions on on our on our lives and the way that we we live and our freedoms. Um, it's just important to keep in mind that you can let that get to you. You can you can let that depress you, you can let that anger you. And to some degree, it should do all of those things because this is a really messed up situation that we're in. But on the other hand, that doesn't limit your ability to change how you respond to it or to see new things or new opportunities within this, this experience, right? Like if you can't go out and see your friends as often, this might be a good opportunity for you to start looking for the value in hanging out by yourself or or in reading or taking up a new craft or taking up something new. Um, If you are getting caught up in the narrative of what's happening in the world, especially, and this is something a lot of people have been voicing to me about the pandemic, government, whatever, wherever this is all going one way or another, um, you can focus on the narrative that you assume is happening, which is often the narrative that you're told is happening by one party or another or many, or you can focus on your part in what's happening now, which is really what you have, that is your power. That is where your your potential is is the part that you you're playing, right? Because everything you do changes that narrative. I think it's so important to recognize that you're not a victim of the narrative. you are an equal part of it. That the narrative is just an attempt to describe the changes that are always happening. But it's always an inaccurate way of describing that change. It's always an assumption of the change. The change is happening. So what you get to determine is what, part of that change are you going to be what are you doing here and now because that changes everything that else, everything else that's happening but so long as you're committed to a fictional narrative it will limit the possibilities that are open to you it'll limit the opportunities that you see and so i, I would say it's important to remember that the, the narrative isn't truth your response to it isn't the only one that's there and, and as soon as you can recognize that that responsibility and that uncertainty it will free up some of your potential and you'll have you'll have more options.
0: Yeah, I've gotten a few questions about just like, you know, what if, you know, mandate lockdowns start happening more and more. And I think for me, it just comes down to, you know, kind of that idea of control, what you can control, which you'll find isn't much, but understanding that, you know, there are two ways that you can look at it. There are multiple, you know, more than two ways. There's tons of perspectives you can have on that and you can, you know, focus on, all the things that you can't do because of it, or you can focus on all the things that you can do and the potential openings in your life that you have because you can't do those things that you more habitually do. Like maybe you habitually spend your weekends doing X, Y, or Z, but like, that's not an option. So like there's now opportunity to not have an excuse to not do these other things that maybe you've been wanting to do for a while. And um, so I think just, you know, perspective is important to keep in mind that there isn't a hard and fast truth, even though a lot of people are reacting in a certain way to a certain situation, doesn't mean that you have to react in that way. It's okay to react differently than everyone else is. It's okay to not, you know, feel like, everything's horrible like going horribly for you and and see you know some silver linings like it's okay to do that you're allowed to do that it is your perspective and your prerogative and and your reactive reaction to the narrative comes down to, to you and your responsibility as Ray mentioned. Next question is it my turn? All right I'm becoming more present. However, sometimes I don't answer slash don't know how to deal with people who I know are being run by their pain body. Any advice? So pain body is for those listening and haven't heard of it is essentially something from, uh, I think Eckhart Tolle is the one who coined it maybe, or he got it from somewhere else. I don't know. He used it in his books and it's the sort of, uh, I don't know what the best way to explain it. It's kind of like equivalent to a degree to ego. It's like the, uh, conditioning past conditioning that causes you to, uh, almost unconsciously react in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah. To, uh, yeah. To, uh, relieve your fears in a certain sense. Um, but it's, it's sort of like habitual reaction patterns that are unconscious in a way Yeah. Um, do you want to start with that one? All right. Um, so in terms of dealing with people with, you know, reacting to their pain body. So I think, I think first of all, understanding that it has nothing to do with you. Like the way that people act towards you has nothing to do with you as much as it seems like it, like if they're directly saying like, fuck you and your name and like you made me do this and this specific thing that you did caused me this harm it's like still doesn't have anything to do with you still entirely within themselves that they are expressing a certain feeling that they're working through and you know as mentioned pain body that they have and so i think the first thing you gotta understand is it has nothing do with you. And so that in itself can help a lot. It helps me a lot with just dealing with anyone day to day, whether it's labeled as them having a pain body or just like a reaction or, you know, whatever, it's just, you know, that's just another label. It's just any sort of reaction or way that people are acting. So I think realizing that it has nothing to do with you seeing, where they're coming from can help being able to have that true empathy of realizing that if you have gone through and had gone through the same things they have, you would do that too. You know, you would have that pain body in whatever way and act towards yourself the way, the exact same way that they are acting towards you. So I think these things are a few things that can immediately help sort of shift a perspective of the situation um, is is having realizing it it doesn't have to do with you and and being able to show that true empathy and then just, I guess not getting too caught up in it and sort of catching yourself too, because I think a lot of times people can get caught up in the sort of spiritual ego side of it where they see, and I guess if you see yourself in them, it's it's may not be as much. But if you get caught up in spiritual ego, is like you know I have you know conquered my pain body. But then you find yourself reacting to someone else's pain body. It's like have you really conquered anything? Or like are you in the exact same boat as them? And now you're blaming them for having a pain body and causing you to react in a certain way. Um, so I think understanding those things and then just realizing that yeah, you know, like you're them, there is no you that's higher and mightier and, you know, more enlightened than anyone or anything. And if you're struggling with, you know, reacting or interacting with people like that, it's not like, I'm not saying you have to seek them out and be like, I need to work on these things. So I'm going to go find the, you know, toughest pain body out there and, and not be reactive towards them. and them. It's like, you don't have to, and you don't even have to keep them in your life necessarily. There's nothing telling you that either. You can, I think a lot of people will say things with, you know, a toxic person in their life. They're like, Oh, cut them out, cold Turkey. I don't think you have to, you know, get all dramatic like that, but I think, you know, distancing yourself, you don't have to, you know, maybe you don't, you know, reach out to them. You don't, if you have a weekly, meal with them, you know, you don't have as many just sort of slowly separate. And if they start asking why and and pushing you on that, you can be frank with them and say, I don't enjoy my interactions with you, quite frankly, and and I'm not going to spend my life, you know, dealing with your, with your shit and whatever way that comes to be. But yeah, so that's, that's a few things that help me keep in mind.
1: It's pretty much it, right? I mean, you, you can deal, deal with somebody who's dealing with their pain body by recognizing yours, which gives you empathy, or you can just work on getting past yours, in which case now you're in a state of clarity. <laughs> right? So either way, that's the best way to interact with them. But if you are getting past your pain body, then chances are you can sit there watching them lash out at you and you can just you know, watch it happen and then let it pass and, and it won't bother you at all. Um, Whereas if you are still looking at your ego, if you are still defending yourself, then this is a perfect opportunity for you to get some practice, as Andrew said. And and again, you don't have to go looking for those people. And I'll add, they will find you. They will find you. As you start to let go of your triggers, as you start start to let go of your, your narrative, things will come along to try and bring those back up. And it's not that those things are happening to bring them back up. It's just that the habitual reaction of those things popping up is still there. And so you'll always have the opportunity to to face that. Uh, We're just going to take a quick moment here and we'll be back in a second with another question from another Patreon supporter, which I have been really looking forward to getting to for the last week. So we'll talk to you in a minute. Okay, and we're back. So this question is something that I've I've actually been asked a number of times over the last year. And it's something that I typically avoid and there's a very specific reason that I avoid it. And so I just wanted to address this quickly. Um, The question is very much, Can you give examples of certain situations that you've been in or would go through and what you would do in those situations using some of the insights that you discuss in your podcast? Now, somebody asked me this in in, um, a one-on-one session a little while ago, and I answered it this way because I think it's very important that I explain why I don't do that. I don't ever want people thinking that the way I would deal with things in this incarnation is the way that they should deal with things. There is no right way. That's very much the point is that all of the insights, all the lessons, all of these these, um, perspectives that we're talking about are meant to be just absorbed and recognized to the best of your ability. And then they will become embodied and expressed in each and every situation that you're in. And so we're recommending things that you just keep in mind to keep your your state of clarity. But if you're ever wondering what I would do in, in the situation that you're in, The answer is very clearly what you're doing. I am. That's exactly what I would do is what you're doing because you're me, right? I would do the best I could with what I understood, which is exactly what you're doing. What you do with it from there is irrelevant because you're the best one to make that call based on how much you see and how much you understand, right? So if you're ever wondering what would Ray do, just ask yourself, what am I doing? And there's your answer. And that's very much why I don't give specific instances on on what you should do with certain insights is because what I would do in that situation based on my life story may not be what makes sense for you. It may not be what's best for you to learn the next lesson or to set yourself a little bit more free.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It kind of reminds me uh, kind of similar to one of our earlier episodes where um, we're talking about the uh, perception of division and separation when I was still like very much working through that idea that, you know, our awareness is the same. Like my awareness is your awareness. It's not that I am just the awareness of Andrew separate from you being the awareness of Ray. It's the same awareness. And I was like, you know, well, you know, why can I wave my hand right now? Like you can't wave my hand and you're like, well, I just did. (laughs) I was like, hmm, all right, it'll come around because it's still not quite there. But yeah, because I, I rewatched uh, some some of our first episode um, came up and I was rewatching some parts and I was like, I- I've kind of come come a ways from that first episode and just like things getting clearer because I was very much still. Yeah, there was a lot that I was, you know. Working through, I guess. But
1: yeah, well, there's a lot to work through. I mean, I've been at those 20 years. I'm still working through it for sure. No, it, it's 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 always interesting, right? Because we assume that, well, if it's all me, I should have control. I <laughs> say not quite. That's, that's not a, your spleen is also you, but you're not running it deliberately right now, right? And so just keep that in mind. Uh, next question is yours. All
0: right. Uh, all right. Any advice on getting out of a funk slash unmotivated state to start working on your goals? Um, do you wanna do you wanna start this one or do you want me to?
1: I I think um, as with everything, removing some of the weight. Motivation is one of those funny things that we always assume that we need the carrot or a stick, right? We need a carrot to chase or a stick to run from in order to get momentum and and, and get moving. But we don't realize often that our momentum is very much limited by the weight that we're carrying on the journey, right? Like we're carrying what we should do, what other people have said worked for them and and what might happen when we finally get there. And so we have, we're way too invested in the goal and how the goal reflects on our value and everything that's gonna go with that to really take the next step with any degree of clarity. Right. And that's the point is that it's very difficult to feel enthusiastic for a journey when there's so much riding on that journey. And so if you can remove some of that weight, if you can look at the journey in terms of it being about the step you're on, because ultimately that's that's the journey is the quality of the step that you're on right now. Right. Then that that pressure will come off. And you will start to feel yourself being more enthusiastic. You will start to feel yourself doing it for the sake of doing it because it feels good to do. And and that kind of motivation almost never runs dry because it's self-perpetuating. You know, as somebody asked me, um, what reasons do you have to be happy? And my response is none. That's why I'm so happy. It's because I don't need one, right? I don't need a reason to be happy in the same way that I don't need a, a reason to be motivated. It's just will in action right? And as long as I'm not doing that action for a particular end result, that's going to make me better or make me more fulfilled or make me happier or anything else, there's no weight to that action, right? There's no danger. There's no risk, right? So I'm not, I'm not just sitting there wondering which way I should go. I'm not just sitting there worried about making the wrong move. I'm just going to move and then roll with whatever happens. And because I can adapt, because I can change the direction I'm going in any way I want to, because I'm not committed to a certain end result. Nothing, it, everything is just growth, growth and expression. And after a while, that is its own motivation. It just takes some practice to get there.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think when people get caught up in having an end goal and, you know, a ends, ends to a means mentality and the doing or the, uh, the outcome makes up for how shitty the doing was, it's like this idea of sort of like the sunk cost fallacy comes into play. And it's like, you've worked all these years to, you know, become a doctor or something. You've been in school for five years. And it's like, because everything of your doing was focused on this end result instead of like the action in itself of of being and and the doing in itself being that sort of fulfillment it builds up this this idea that it was just like you know a dead period of your life just life wasted and it's like it doesn't have to be like that it's kind of like the like the myth of Sisyphus um that by uh who Albert Camus uh where Sisyphus the uh he got what sentenced to basically by the Greek gods or, or some gods to roll a boulder up a mountain for his entire life. And then as soon as he gets to the top, it just rolls back down. And the book, the myth myth of Sisyphus is like that, that is, it's deemed this horrendous punishment. Like he's doing this thing that is meaningless his entire life. But then Albert Camus says he thinks it's, you know, a myth and it's actually very similar to living life. And it's, it's the myth is that Sisyphus wasn't happy. Like what if he was happy the entire time? And he was, what if the mountain was beautiful and he was pushing the boulder up the mountain and the doing in itself was enough. And it's kind of like how life is like there, you don't, when that is the, the doing is fulfilling in itself. You don't need a meaning to life to work towards. You don't need end goals to achieve in order to find some semblance of value. Because even if you achieve a goal, it's just, it's a split second achievement. And then it's like, you know, it's just one tiny split, you know, hairline moment. Um, But yeah. And then I think when it comes to feelings of procrastination or, or motivation, just the idea of motivation, I think is is kind of blown out of proportion a little bit. Like people wait around for a feeling of, of motivation. And I think, you know, we talk about this a lot just how action, like nothing can replace action at the end of the day. So if you're not feeling motivated, you know, just do something and eventually some feelings will arise through that. Like, as soon as you start doing things, you'll start, you know, building up some momentum where you, you know, uh, I don't know about accomplish something, but get some semblance of results from the action that you're taking. And then you'll feel motivated to continue taking action. But like if you're sitting on the couch eating potato chips, waiting to get motivated to go to the gym, like you're it's it's probably not going to come knocking. Like, how about you set a goal? of putting down the potato chips, set a goal of standing up off the couch and then see where that leads you instead of sitting there without taking any action, completely foisting the responsibility off onto some external feeling, you know, on God to like rain down on you to like gift you with motivation. How about you just stand up and go put your gym clothes on and see if that will build some momentum and all of a sudden you're at the gym.
1: Do something you're not used to doing right like that's it just just break the cycle it doesn't matter what it is it really doesn't I mean just put yourself in a situation you're not used to dealing with and you will find energy you will find that, that suddenly you have will and it's happening in the moment because of course you have to deal with the situation that you're in and of course that might piss you off that might might make you self-reflect it might do a number of things but it's going to cause you to use your energy It's going to cause you to actually move in a way that you're not familiar with. It's just going to give you an insight into the value of movement as a whole. And then you'll just start to feel good about moving in general, because it feels good. And stagnation, as much as it's comfortable, it's also the path to death, right? Like in stagnation, nothing happens. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. And so, yeah, if you want to be motivated, you have to give yourself reasons to be motivated. And often that's just discomfort. Right. Just just get out of your comfort bubble and, and you will start to experience momentum. Do
0: you believe money is crucial for a society to work out? Do you want to start this one off?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be my answer. Um, no, I, I don't. I don't think that money is crucial for a society to work. I think that money is crucial for an egotistical society to work. Um, if, and that really de- depends on what you mean by work. Um, I wouldn't say that our current society is really working uh, so much as just continuing to limp on despite the consequences. <laughs> um, so I think that for us to achieve a society that does in fact work, or or that is in alignment with what's in its own best interest that we have to get past the egotistical state of mind that drives the monetary system and the entire need for capitalism to begin with. I think we actually have to have some recognition that we are all in fact in this together, that we're all extensions of the earth or extensions of the same awareness or extensions. It doesn't even matter how we come to terms with it, but we have to stop perceiving the division to be so real just because it seems real. And, and then once we do that, then the entire idea of needing to get mine or, or trying to profit myself above everybody else stops making sense. And as soon as that stops making sense, so does money. That would be my answer there. Nice short one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm i on the same page. I, I haven't, I don't think I've spent as much time thinking about, you know, the world without money or, or the ideas of money or history of money and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I think it is just an interesting concept and the whole idea of, you know, people wanting more money and not even more wealth necessarily has always been pretty fascinating with me. It's something that Alan Watts talks about a lot, that idea that just people want more money in their bank account. It's not even they want, you know, more wealth or what that that can give them. And, you know, I think the conversation shifts very rapidly when you see yourself as everything and until then it is, I think it's, it's tougher to have that sort of conversation, um, in the need and whether or not it is actually necessary, but yeah, I see myself a lot more just like, especially cause in my neighborhood, there's a lot of like homeless people around and even just like seeing that and seeing them around, like want, like doing more, in the past couple months to like help them out when I, when I can and seeing that because, you know, although I, I know I can't, you know, give money to every single homeless person in New York. It's like, it doesn't hurt to help a few out, you know, help myself out here and there um, when I have the opportunity. Um, But yeah. So I think, yeah, same, same page as Ray. And I think the conversation is, is, a different one and it can be tougher to have when the illusion of division is still very strong in our society
1: absolutely and that's definitely something we're working towards which is why these episodes are so much fun okay so now we'll get into a bit more of the metaphysical stuff because this is this is always entertaining to me the idea of reincarnation past lives now i don't know if you've had any experience with past life regression or past life regression therapy. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of exploring past lives, um, but it's something that's that's documented. People do go through these experiences where they perceive themselves to be in different characters, different lives, different timelines, and then they learn lessons from that, or rather, they they assume that there are lessons that they're learning in this in this incarnation that are tying from those past lives. Often, that's misinterpreted as what karma is supposed to mean. Um, do you think that that that's Do you think there is a such thing as reincarnation? And if not, what do you think is happening there?
0: Um, So no, not in the sense of like the egotistical, like I was this person, then I was this person, then I was this person, now I'm Andrew. It's like, if I'm everyone, then I was always Everyone. So I think when past life regression happens, I've I've dug into it a little bit. I don't have a ton of experience thinking about it, but you know, and we've sort of had conversations about this a little bit, but understanding that I am everyone and everything, that means that I'm not just everyone, you know, in 2021 on earth, it's like I'm everyone now, which is eternal. So when someone does sort of past life regression, I think it's just tapping into that deeper awareness of being able to experience a different timeline almost. But at the same time, if it's all now, eternally now, then it's just our perception that it was a past life. It's just another awareness that is here now happening, and we just perceive it, it's kind of a similar aspect of like, you know, the beginning of existence is just, we have a flawed perception of time thinking that there, you know, had to have been a beginning. And then it's like, well, what's before the beginning? Why couldn't have just always been because of our, you know, perception of vision and, and time and the illusion of time, seeing it as, you know, truth, it it skews these things. But yeah, that's my perspective.
1: That's awesome. That's, that's exactly correct. Now, I, I, I've I thought about this for a long time, because of course, there are there are instances and, and I know from clients that I've worked with where they went for past life regression, and in doing so managed to Look at a particular version of themselves or another incarnation that led them to an insight that helped them get over something that they were dealing with in this incarnation, right? And so, like for example, um, one client that I worked with had a history of abuse with every every spouse that she had had. She had been married like three times, and so she went to do past life regression and tapped into tapped into an incarnation of herself, which was an abusive male. And so she got to experience things from that perspective. And because it allowed her to look at things without attaching her character to it, she managed to gain some context and it changed her reaction to her own experience. It changed her perspective of everything that she had gone through, which I thought was great, really cool. But as you said, there is no past and there is no future and everything is now. So all she was really doing was allowing herself to see another version of herself that is in the here and now. But often when we do past life regression, we will immediately assume that we are certain characters that we can relate to, that relate to our current perspective of who we are. right? So a lot of people who do past life regression will see their ancestors because they can relate to that, they can see the narrative, how it ties them together, or they'll they'll experience a life of somebody who is from their culture, or from somebody who was in a situation that's similar to the situation they just went through. And there's always a point of relation between the two characters, between who I see myself to be and who I allow myself to access, right? So what's interesting about that is that, because it's all now, it means that the more I let go of this character, the more I can relate to all the other characters. And that doesn't just mean human, because if I'm getting rid of the connection, that means I have to relate to something that, that's similar to me. And I stop seeing myself as something that needs to be compared to. I can relate to DNA, I can relate to trees, I can relate to plant life. And from that, I can get insights, I can add to my context, I can grow. So it's not just true metaphysically, it's also true with people we deal with in the day-to-day life, right? If you were to, deal, uh, to meet somebody from another country, if you were to hold on to the idea of yourself being an American, it'd be very difficult for you to interact with that person and see their cultural history or see what's important to them. Whereas if you didn't identify, you would immediately have more insights into their way of life. So it's true, regardless of if it's, if it's in this incarnation or if we're tapping into other incarnations that also exist now. It's always the dissolution of the self that allows us to to access all of the other insights within our own singular universal awareness. I've always thought it was really interesting that we almost limit the amount of access we have by calling it past life
0: regression. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. All right. Um, uh, Do you think people would understand you better if they have done mushrooms or psychedelics? Hmm. I like that question. Um, So we've talked about this in the past, the idea of psychedelics being a tool that can sort of clear... Some of the fog, but not a end in itself, and I think that kind of plays into this question of like, could people understand some of the things that I that we talk about if they have done psychedelics? Well, you know, a lot of what we talk about is questioning your perceptions of yourself and understanding that no perception is truth, the description is never the described, uh, the interpretation is never the interpreted, and I think. Things like mushrooms and psychedelics allow you the opportunity. It kind of like opens the door to be able to maybe get to that understanding more clearly, but it's not going to take you all the way exactly. Like it still comes down to you and insights that you have still are you like when you're, you know, high on marijuana or, you know, psychedelics or anything, like it's still you, you're just able to see more clearly. And you're, there's not as much distortion. There's not as much, you know, perception of division. There's not as much self, there's not as much identity or ego involved in everything that you're thinking and experiencing. So you're able to see things a little bit more clearly. So I think that even with things we talked about, like I was just talking about how on episode one, there were things that I was still very much, you know, not as clear on. And I think, you know, since doing some psychedelics, it has helped me see some things more clearly. There have been very distinct times. I remember tripping and being like, Oh, that thing Ray said that I had like, was not grasping like that. I see it now. Like I get it now. So like, it does allow you for that opportunity, but if you still have Like very strong perceptions of the way things are and concrete beliefs about the way things are, it will peel those back for sure. But if you're not willing to, you know, like look inside, the door may be open, but if you don't want to look inside, it's not going to, you know, it's, it comes, it comes down to you at the end of the day and it's not going to, you know, do any of the work for you, but it can certainly be a very helpful tool in that sense.
1: Absolutely. And, and I just want to say on, on an additional note that it's super important to not try psychedelics with the intention of becoming enlightened, right? Or, or understanding us. Because immediately you're projecting an idea, right? It's like um, having a psychedelic experience, waiting for a certain feeling, right? And this happens to so many people. It's like, I'm not feeling it yet. It's like, because you're projecting what you think you should be experiencing, Right, which is changing the entire experience for you. It's limiting it in every way. And, and so the same is true is that if, if you are going to try psychedelics or, or if, you are, if you are going to, to trip out as it were, um, just keep in mind that the point is to not have a point. It's to just be where you are, right? And just to, to just be in that experience. And as you allow that to happen, All of a sudden, everything that Andrew and I have been talking about will start to fall together. But if you go into it going, I'm gonna eat these and I'm gonna think about what Andrew and Ray have been talking about, you are gonna have a very frustrating trip because you're still thinking about concepts. You're not allowing yourself to sink into the reality, which is ultimately what we're trying to describe. We're just using concepts to describe the reality, right? And so in order to, to experience that, you have to allow yourself to surrender the concept. Then you can use the concepts as a tool rather than having them be a master, just like your mind. Right. So that's a great question.
0: Yeah. Like the pointers to the truth are never the truth. So literally nothing that we say ever is the truth. It's just pointers to it. So if you have, you know, ears to hear, then it can make sense, but it's, it still comes from within your own, your awareness, your experience that the concepts become, you know, clearer, which, you know, we can do our best to drop steeds and and explain things, but we, we still don't even come close to doing any of it justice. So it's like, if you're relying on us, you're yeah, like, Ray said, you're going to have a frustrating trip. And I will say the one time that I did have expectations going into a trip, taking a higher dose than I had previously thinking it was going to be, you know, the same thing, but just like going deeper into it. It was a very, it's not, it wasn't a bad trip or anything, but it was very sobering as yeah, as Ray's put it. And, and yeah, so that was the one time. And since then I go into it and I'm just, you know, I'm here now. I am, awareness, experiencing itself. And that's all I know is what is here and now and see what happens. And that's pretty much it. I go into it, you know, kind of understanding that it's uncertain and I have no idea what is going to happen and that's okay being comfortable in that. But, you know, the one time I, I did a higher dose and I had expectations going into it, it was very much sobering and, you know, not what I expected. And, because I had expectations of it, it wasn't close to anything that I expected. And I came out of it kind of like, you know, not bummed out, but just like understanding that, you know, that's what happens when you have expectations going into it. Basically,
1: (laughs) Absolutely right. Everything gets measured according to your expectations and it it takes away the flavor, right? It was just, it's just (laughs) like, it's just like anything else. You know, if you, if you, if you build it up in your head, that's what you're experiencing rather than what's actually happening, right? So yeah, that's, that's, that's funny. Um, okay, this is my last question. And I figured I, I'm gonna wrap up on this one. Then you have, I'm sure, another question, but I wanna ask you this because we were talking about reincarnation, past lives, the fact that all awareness is singular and exists only in the here and now. What do you think that means about lost loved ones? Do you think, do you think we see them again?
0: I mean, did they ever exist? In the first place (laughs) and the idea of you know lost loved ones I mean like who was the loved one that wasn't you like that it isn't is it not not just a story that's been created that the story is born and then the story ends but it was never anything real to begin with and it was always sort of in the realm of that illusion of duality yes. so
1: now that's difficult though because we're, 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 what we are talking about there is solitude in the extreme right which isn't necessarily what reality is i mean in reality we have the dualistic experience like we always are born to parents right we always have some degree of community or or, or family or familial connection whatever that might be so when we lose somebody, like for example, if a parent passes on or, or a child passes on or something like that, we like to tell ourselves that you know we'll see them in the afterlife, right? And, and and you know to some degree you can see the reality that that's based on, right? Which is that you're always going to see the same awareness. You're always going to continue seeing because the people that we love aren't the people that we love, are they? Right? The the expression that they are isn't the person that they are. They're the awareness that's expressing itself through that person, right? So when we love somebody, we love who they truly are, regardless of their expression, regardless of, of their distortion, regardless of, of the character they've, they've convinced themselves that they are, right? So as you said, you know, we're, we're ultimately just loving ourselves. But if that's the case, then everyone is a version of our loved ones as well. They're a version of us, right? So um, when a client asked me this recently, what happens to our loved ones? Do we see them again? My answer was, I'm talking to one right now. Um, Because we're always surrounded by those who are closest to us because they're all us in infinite variations in, in every life. there's a partner in every life. There's a child in every life. There's a family. and Well, not every life, but most lives within the dualistic spectrum have that that situation or or rather that dynamic. And so you're you're seeing infinite variations of not just a single person or a single awareness, but the relationships that that single awareness would have with other versions of itself. Right. And so it's kind of like that video that you sent me uh, the other day and my wife had, had sent it to me as well about there being this small tribe of super enlightened beings on another planet who then went and, and decided they were going to come to earth and, and save everybody. Right. And they were there because they were super enlightened and they were going to decide to come here and they were going to go through a big, hard journey and, and, and so on and so forth. There's such an ounce of truth to that. And at the same, on the same token, there's so much distortion there because now there's the narrative of this tribe of super enlightened beings coming to earth and saving us. And there's an idea of humanity and, 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 and all of that. But, What they're really describing is the fact that there is a core group of variations, right, to awareness. There is the core of of, there's a me and a you, right? And there's always a me and a you in this dualistic experience. And so we're always talking to our loved ones. They just take different forms, right? Like I've talked to a version of you that was 70 years old and had lived through the hippie movement. And the differences between you and that person is just the lives you've lived and the way you perceived yourself, right? But I can clearly see the same awareness between the two of you, right? So you are the fact, in fact, the same awareness. It's just that he was never the person that he identified with and neither are you.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's a question that I thought of while you were saying that. with, with the, the idea that like we are impacting our environment and our environment impacting us, people have the idea of, you know, the identities of people like taking that as truth, but it never is. And we impact our environment, our environment impacts us. That means all of our loved ones are within our environment and we are within their environment. So they are Still alive in the sense that they are us. Like they, like my grandpa who passed away when I was younger, like I was pretty close to him and he impacted my life. Like he is still in existence, not, you know, the ego identity of him, but his awareness expressed through James Sweeney is still within because he impacted my entire family and all of his friends and everything. So through that, they are still very much there. But I am curious um, just along these lines with people who pass away and people will say, you know, they, that someone passed and then they felt, you know, felt a hug or something like that, or some some like supernatural thing happened. And it's like, oh, that's them, you know, in heaven telling me that, you know they're okay, blah, blah blah. Like, what do you think that is when someone feels something like a hug or a kiss on their cheek or, or something? Is it is it that they are kind of superimposing a, a wish that it happened, and then some feeling hits them in a way, even if it's just like you know the wind in a certain way, and they perceive it as that, and they kind of attach to it, or That's or do you think question. they're is something actually to that?
1: That's a really good question. It really comes back down to what you were saying about the ripples that that our loved ones make, right? Like they affect us, they change us. Um, And in that way, we're not, human beings aren't very different from thoughts within a singular mind, right? One thought affects another thought and that creates new thoughts, just like one person affects another person and creates children, right? And those children evolve to basically grow beyond the thoughts that were their parents, right? But as for the experience of, of like a kiss on the cheek or a hug, in my experience, it's because of the ripple. It's because of the influence that person had on us. We, there's a part of our awareness that is almost acting out what they would do in order for us to kind of bridge that gap, right? Because they are us, there's no separation. So I'm not in any way downplaying the fact that, you know it's that person expressing love, but it's not that person expressing love. It's the awareness of that person, which is you right and so yeah I, I think that as with everything there's an ounce of truth to it and i think that there's a certain amount of wishful thinking that that can go into that i mean george carlin does a great skit on on the uh, absurdity of people who are like you know i'm sure he's all staring down at us right now and then he kind of makes a, a big joke about this like really you think that's what he's doing with you know nothing else to do with his life he's just watching you like i'm sure he's got better things to do so it's kind of funny and, and, and i definitely encourage you to watch that skit but um there's so much more happening than than we're aware of and as long as we have this perspective that we're bodies for one um two ideas or separate right it becomes very difficult to interact with the rest of our consciousness with the, the rest of our awareness in a way that is as meaningful as it could be which is the same as as very much dreaming. When you are in a dream and you have an experience in that dream, that experience is very meaningful to you. It'll shake you for the rest of the day and it'll change you as a person, right? And it's largely it has that, that deeper impact because you recognize it's your dream, right? It's you doing it as opposed to it being done to you. And so if we can get to the point where we actually recognize this is one big dream of a limitless mind, then we can actually start getting more meaningful and symbolic lessons out of it, such as you know, the communication of, of one of our awareness that has passed, but still dwells on within us. There's so much there, right? And so, yeah, there's a, there's a whole other way of, of living that religion and spirituality tries to describe and it tries to practice and it creates a narrative and it creates these, these uh, ceremonies and everything else to try and communicate what could be a beautiful experience, but we miss it in the interpretation. We miss it in, in, in the, the translation between, you know, the insight going through the ego and then it becoming another part of the play, right? But um, yeah, I, I think that there is some truth to all of that. And I, on the other hand, I think that there's great a great amount of illusion that's still based on our perception of ourselves as separate, for sure.
0: Um, I was also curious, uh, going back to that, the story that I sent you and your wife sent you of the intergalactic beings that, you know, the people who created that story feel like they probably think they are those things, uh, for sure, which is, yeah, I watched that and I was like, uh, I know Ray's, Ray's going to enjoy this one. Um, but with, I'm curious what the ounce of truth you see in that is like, what part of that has that sort of ounce of truth, sure.
1: In it, absolutely. Um, comes back down to the unity and duality thing, right? Like unity is ultimately what is, and in unity you have complete solitude. There's not even another person to to talk about or think about or conceptualize. There's no me in unity because me requires a you, right? But as soon as we get past unity, as soon as we experience duality, or rather the beginning of duality, now you have one goes to two, right? And then two goes to three and so on and so forth, right? And so the duality expands, the variations expand. Well, what they're talking about in that video is the variations off of that first point of me, that very small tribe of super enlightened beings, right? We're the first excerpts of duality, still keeping in mind that their unity expressed as duality and without getting lost in all of the dualistic mumbo jumbo of thinking that they actually are separate. That's the ounce of truth. That, that we can actually get to that point. Now, I've often thought about our history as, as a species because the closer we get to the recognition that we are one singular awareness, that we are God, the less we invest in the physicality or in, in the physical story. And so if you look at our population, which we mentioned earlier, is over 7 billion people, right? Often people have children because you know they wanna continue their legacy or they, they, they think this is what they should do and so on and so forth. Well, none of that makes sense when you recognize that you are the infinite universe or the awareness of the universe. None of that makes sense at all. And so all of a sudden you wouldn't have as many children, you wouldn't have as many fears, you wouldn't have this need, this need to continue your legacy. You wouldn't in any way have the same physical soap opera that we're having right now. And so the closer we get to awareness, the more our population drops, Right. And so that's kind of the point of that video as well, is that the closer we get to evolving as a species or as awareness, the less we're going to get get involved with things that continue to distort the outcome, that continue to cause more consequences. We'll have more awareness of the ripples that we're creating and and thus we'll make different choices. And so as much as it's true at the beginning that there's a small population of us that expanded to a bigger one, it's also true at the end where that larger population has to reduce itself back to a smaller population again to find balance Until we do, we're in some serious shit. I mean, there's only so much food on the planet. There's only so many resources on this earth. There's only so much to go around. And as long as we avoid alignment with that or the recognition that we're a part of that, we're going to continue to push ourselves into this point of desperation and and, uh, scarcity as a result. So I think that would be the answer truth is that the closer we get to awareness or as they call it enlightenment um the closer we get to that small core group of people who recognize they're all one another but they're not coming to earth
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh man yeah that was such an interesting video and the the someone dm'd it to me and they were like i absolutely loved this video i think you would love it and i i sent them a decently long response just like i yeah, it's, it's an interesting story is kind of how I started out. Um, but yeah, yeah, that idea and it, I'm curious to see, I guess we'll, we'll see, but with, with going back from, you know, population expanding to decreasing, if I guess it'll be probably a combination of a multitude of factors, but if it's, you know, natural disasters, asteroids, or it's, it's a more prolonged, just understanding of you know getting closer and closer to awareness and the recognition of unity but it'll probably be a combination i'm sure it's going to
1: happen one way or another the longer we put it off the harder it's going to be i mean the simple fact is i mean like honeybees honeybees are vanishing man i mean what einstein i think said it you know honeybees disappear we got four years left on this planet yeah. right like you got to consider all of that keystone species this all makes a difference i mean as long as we're putting it off we're going to continue to exacerbate the consequences as long as we're not practicing awareness about what we do and why we do it and where we're going right as a result of what we do and why we do it we're just going to keep putting it off we're going to keep throwing those snowballs back up the hill trying to ignore the the impending avalanche right but then that avalanche will happen and will one way or another our our population on this planet is going to decrease one way or another if it's willingly it's going to be a lot easier than if it's not i'm out of questions do you have any more
0: i do i have a couple on instagram back on the instagram video uh yeah i have three comments here
1: perfect let's wrap them up we promised everybody we'd get to their questions and we're doing it
0: yes yeah no, this is actually kind of by quick. I'm like, I'm so just like relaxed, enjoying this conversation. It makes it easier to just like having the questions that it's just like, like we, I feel like we could do this for like eight hours.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, one going.
0: Day. Yeah. One day. Um, Who or what's keeping you alive? So I think that's kind of similar to something we touched on before with like motivation or what's your why kind of like why continue existing? And my response always comes back to like, why not? Um, yeah. And I was talking to my friend yesterday. Um, we had, yeah, I think our conversation about all this stuff just bounced around for probably three hours, probably close to this. And it was, it was great, but, uh, he, cause he has always been, you know, more on the atheist side of things like very scientific, like, he wants to see the logic and the reasoning behind something. So that's why he never got caught up really in religion, grew up Jewish, but he found that to be silly from an early age. And, um, but he, uh, he was asking about that, like when it comes to why, and for a while he didn't have like great reason. He thinks about that all the time. Like, why, why don't I just, stay in bed all day and like do nothing. Like why, why not? And, and my response to stuff like that is always like, that's still a choice. Like you're still choosing, like even though you've deemed it as inaction, like sitting on the couch all day, it's still a choice. Like you can't escape making a choice in every single situation. You're always making a choice in one way or another. So you know, why exist? Why continue existing? Why not? I'm here. Might as well do something about it. You know, I, I know there are things that I enjoy doing. There's stuff I'm enthusiastic about, whether it's, you know, in part because of my conditioning or just things I like, you know, not taking things too seriously helps keeping things light as we've talked about, before not getting too tied to narratives or belief systems, all these things help in, in the recognition that, you know, we just are, and things just are. And, and that's not to say I have even recently gotten caught on like the pessimistic side of nihilism and it's like, nothing matters. So like, why do anything? And it's like, it just always comes back to why not? I don't really have a great reason why not to? I'm here. I'm I'm exist. I'm here now. That's all I know. Might as well do something with it. That's kind of it for me. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: no doubt. I mean, I come from uh, a slightly more dark and depressing side of things where I, I was I was pretty committed to killing myself for a very long time. Um, and so I thought about that in great detail <laughs> for a very long time. Um, and what what stopped it for me was the recognition that it wouldn't do anything. That's that's the problem, right? Like I could die. I'm not going to die, right? My awareness is going to continue on in all the other incarnations and so the why is irrelevant. I will always exist. I will always exist. And so it really just comes down to what do I wanna do with it? And, and you don't have to do anything. You can lay in bed all day by all means, but try and keep, keep something in mind. The energy you get out of your experience is going to be directly relational to the energy you put into your experience, right? So if you're complaining about your existence, it's entirely possible you're not looking at who's responsible for that existence, right? And that's pretty much it, right? But as for the what, what keeps me going, I am existence, I'm what's going. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, Yeah. I found a few more questions on another page. I'm just gonna ask you one now. All right. Okay. What do I do with all of this information? Does it happen automatically?
0: So what do I do with all this information? Does what happen? automatic insights
1: the insights that we're talking about the transition from living egotistically and within the limits of your narrative to feeling freedom to expressing yourself and embodying your awareness without the limitations of who you think you are and all the conflict that goes with that we talk about all of this a lot most of my contents about it um but again there's that, that there's the conceptual part you can take notes right but then there's the actual application, the the recognition of what we're talking about, the reality below the concepts. And so I think the question here is, now that we've talked about all this, now that I have all my notes, (laughs) um, am I changing automatically? Is this gonna happen on its own now that I have all of this information, right? Is this just something that I have to wait for it to play out? And and that's a really good question. There's a a lot in that question. I'm curious to see what you think.
0: Um, Yeah, well, it's playing out right now, right? (laughs) And I think, I think it happens when you stop holding on to all of the ideas of the way you think it should be. And it happens when you stop trying to make it happen. You know, when you're silent, it speaks. When you speak, it's silent. So it's basically like when you stop trying to achieve anything and you are just aware here and now of what is without any of the distortion, without any of the, Uh, perceptions of division, without all of the belief systems, without all of that, those things that take you, that, you know, fog up that sort of clarity or, you know, the layers that are on top of, you know, what is here and now, all of your perceptions, all of your judgments about what is. So I think just when it comes to action, it's like, you know, I guess questioning anything when it comes up consistently all the time. I find myself doing that like hundreds of times a day when things come up about, you know, the way I think things to be, the way I think someone else is, the way I think myself is, who I think myself is, who I think someone else is. As soon as it starts happening, I immediately question it. So I get questions like, you know, if you would consider like, what religion are you closest to? Do you think you'll ever be? religious ever again and i'm like i i don't know if it would be possible the amount of times i question things every single day like so many times a day like there's just no way a religion could fit into that amount of questioning because it just wouldn't it wouldn't make it through. Wouldn't survive the, gaunt- the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, it wouldn't it survive the gauntlet of my day of questioning? Like there's no way. So yeah, when it comes to application, realizing there's nothing you have to apply. Like when we have these conversations, like we have this podcast because we enjoy having this podcast. We don't have, you know, a, a like reason necessarily for each episode. It's, The doing for the sake of doing, having the conversation for the sake of having the conversation, going on a walk for the sake of going on a walk, like, you know, doing anything just for the sake of doing it. So there's no, I I think as soon as you start getting caught up in thinking there is a right way to apply these things or a correct way to implement things into your life or a correct way to understand any of the insights, as soon as you get tied to that is you're, you're distancing yourself further from it. So it's not trying to do anything at all at the end of the day.
1: Beautifully said. That was perfect because it, that, that's very much it. It's just allow it to happen. It's already happening. It's so counterintuitive to everything that we've been taught. But I love the fact that the questioner is actually asking, do I just let this happen? right? Which is an insight in itself. So that that's very inspiring. That was a great answer. I really enjoyed that. Um, that's it. I'm officially out of questions now, except for what questions do I ask myself, which you just answered as many as I can.
0: All the time. It's like, yeah, I never, I, yeah, the, the more I can question things, it's just like not letting them slide almost. It's like not allowing myself to settle on answers, which like some people would probably say that's got to be exhausting, but I think it's the opposite. I think it's, you know, energizing and it's not like, it's not like this obsessive thing. Also, it's not like this discipline or practice that I feel like I need to be doing. And if I don't, you know, question things, then I judge myself and I feel like a failure or whatever. It's just like existing here now, aware of what is, without the additional distortion and it's not about adding things and I talk about this when I explain you know mushrooms to people because I get a lot of questions about them with people in in my closer in my life and whatnot friends and family and I explain I try to explain that it's not like you're adding something you're not adding layers to it that's making you feel you know, a level of highness like other drugs. It's it's like you're just getting peeled back. So you know, you exist in this state of distortion and very much a fogged perception of the way things are, based on all of your conditioning and experiences and whatnot. All that the mushrooms do are help peel those back, so you're able to see things more clearly and appreciate things for what they are. Which is why people think that it'll be very helpful for you know the mental health community. Um,
1: yeah, so. yeah, exactly. It's actually, it's, it's very much like we discussed in our, our manifestation workshop about the more strings you're attaching to your kite, the less, the less it's going to fly, right? And, and that's very much the case is that, you know, take the weight off and you'll be, you'll be amazed at what you're capable of right? But as long as you're trying to add weight to find out what you're capable of, you're actually just working against yourself, <laughs> right? And so it's it's very much, it's like uh, one of those finger puzzles, right? The more you pull, the harder it gets, you're going to push in and do the counterintuitive thing to actually defeat the puzzle. And, and it's very much the same with our mind.
0: Yeah, certainly. All right. I got two more questions here. Uh, do you believe the idea that perception is reality? <laughs> I feel like we've, talked about this quite a bit um yeah so like I've had people comment like what if perception is the only thing that is real or you know your perception of me is real or like the way you perceive things is reality and it's like no I mean it's it's not it's your individual perception like if two people can perceive the same thing in two different ways, I think that's enough proof in itself that it's not reality. And Give perception. me two
1: seconds. I'll perceive it in more than one way. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, exactly. One person can perceive it in an essentially an infinite number of ways. So how could that be reality if there are an infinite number of ways to perceive something? Absolutely.
1: Though it does, it does influence our experience of what is. That I will admit. But I I think that's the danger is that we we assume that because it, it influences our experience, that it is the definition of what's real. Right. But it's just the experience. Right. And while that is the experience of reality, it's not reality itself. Right. Because if that were the case, then I would never be able to change my experience. Right. And I can't, I have complete freedom to do that. As, as we just said, you know, I can find numerous different perspectives of what's happening right now. Right. And each of those perspectives is going to change my experience, but that's the point is that none of those perspectives are actually what's happening right now. It's just changing my experience of what's happening right now. So no, perception is not reality though. Perception does in fact influence our experience of reality. That would be my best answer.
0: Yeah. I think that it's nail on the head. (laughs) All right. Last question: uh, How does someone deal with constant rejection from people? You want to start this one off.
1: Sure, I I'll start this one off. Um, the the simple answer, in in my opinion, is stop needing people to accept you, right? And that that would be ultimately it. Is that if if you are worried about people's rejection of you. It's because you're over committed to their acceptance of you. There's there's a part of you that you're looking to validate, that you're looking to add value to through other people's perspectives. And, and so if you can get past that, or you, at least you can recognize that you're doing that, then you'll recognize that your value has never been lowered or, or, or diminished whatsoever by people's rejection of you. It, they're just determining the experience that they're going to have. It just doesn't include you, but on the, on the bright side, it's entirely possible that you're better off for that. Um, I had somebody write to me recently and say, you know, I, I never had any parents. I really grew up identifying with that as not having value and not being lovable. And, and I pointed out, I'm like, we well, have to understand that because his parents had left him, um, that it takes a certain type of person in a, ter- in a certain type of mentality and in a certain emotional state to leave behind a child. Right, so consider the kind of person who left you behind. And then remember that you dodged a bullet. It may not always feel that way, right? But the fact is, is that you're probably better off for not being raised by people who are in that mentality. And that's not always easy to to see when you're identifying with what you think it means about you. But as soon as you can start to question them and their intentions and your perspectives of everything else, then it it can start to, to fall together for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, I've never thought of that sort of perspective in that sense, but it makes a lot of sense. Certainly. Um, I think, yeah, I think it comes down to understanding that there is nothing lacking within you that you need someone to fill that void with. Like you are perfectly whole and complete exactly as you are right now, even though it may feel not feel like that, it doesn't mean that it isn't. And that's just the feeling that you have attached to as the truth, based on you know your beliefs about yourself and the way things are, and who you are, and who other people think you are, and and all of those things. So I think, and yeah, habit. it comes.
1: Yeah. I can't express that enough. Habit, habit is a huge one. Our brain is desperately trying to form cycles of familiarity. So if if you are dealing with thoughts over and over and over again, often what you're dealing with is just your brain's mechanism of trying to form habits. That's it. So it's not something wrong with you just so much as something you have to spend time deprogramming, right? That That's all it is. is if you're still dealing with it, it's entirely possible that you're not, in fact, still dealing with it. You're just trying to shake off the habit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, our brains are habit forming machines or they want to be. And yeah, I think it comes back to similar to other responses, just questioning all of it all the time. Like why you feel this sense of lack and then getting into digging into that a little bit, like why you feel like you need to be accepted in the first place as Ray was saying, and and digging into that a bit. And then, you know, when it comes to getting friends and being rejected or accepted or, whatnot, a lot of times people try and shift who they are to fit into a certain group of people. And it's like, I don't, I don't ever see a logical, rational, good reason to do that because either, you know, you're a different, you know, version, you're always yourself. But if you're trying to be a certain version of yourself, that isn't naturally who you are to fit into this group, then either you know, there's going to come a point where you can't keep up the mask anymore and you break and you know, that can lead to some semblance of anxiety and depression, or you attract, or at the same time you attract people that you don't actually like. You have this idea of just like being accepted for the sake of being accepted because you don't want other groups to perceive you as being, you know, like a loner or something, but. That's just their perception, also, or just your perception of yourself of feeling bad. Because for some reason, it's like if you don't have a lot of friends, people see that as negative, which I don't know why, you know, why is that also question that? Like, I I think it's probably because historically we've grown up in clans and we kind of need a group of people in order to survive. That's why people get very anxious about how other people perceive them and what other people's opinions about their life is, because it's in our DNA. It's in our evolution to need to be wanted by people. It's not relevant anymore. So you can question that perception. Like you don't need, you can fully exist on your own basically nowadays. Um, so yeah, just question those things, understand that you're holding the plate exactly as you are right now. You don't need to be accepted by anyone. And if you're you know, trying to be someone that you're not, and then you get rejected you know it's like you're probably better off being who you are naturally to begin with because that's going to kind of suck if if you're trying to be someone else and then you get rejected so you might as well just be who you are because at the end of the day people are more attracted to authenticity typically anyway they can feel when you're trying to be someone else to get accepted by them because at that point you're expecting something out of them if you're trying to act a certain way in order to get accepted so by not expecting anything out of anyone you're just being yourself more people will probably be more comfortable around you. And all of a sudden you may not be getting rejected as much.
1: <laughs> that's actually kind of the nice thing about being yourself is that it's an automatic way of weeding out the shitty company, right? <laughs> that's pretty much it, right? Because anybody who tells you you need people around you are telling you what they feel they need, right? That's all they're telling you. And, and so keep that in mind. If, if, that's, if that person's telling you you need people around you, Wonder why they're hanging out with you. There might be an indication of what's going on there. Um, This has been a great episode. I've really enjoyed all of these questions. Uh, we did cover as many, well, we covered everything that we've written down, but if we did mani- if we did miss any questions whatsoever, because we have a lot of different channels where we're taking these questions from, I do encourage you to join us on Patreon. Patreon supporters can message us directly, submit their questions uh, on a post that we do before each and every Q&A episode. And so it's much easier to organize and it'll make sure that you're not forgotten. Um, likewise, if you'd like to participate in this community that we're we're growing and are a part of, definitely join us on the Dualistic Unity community Discord. Great group of people there. We're having a, a lot of fun in that conversation and it's going to grow into something epic. So we'd love to see you there.
0: Yes, certainly. Yeah, this has been a ton of fun. I always enjoy doing Q&A episodes. They're like, you know, easy you just read through them and, you know, especially being able to have a discussion about it. So I'm looking forward to doing more and just you know, more live events coming up season two of, of everything coming up very soon. And, and yeah, so if you made it this far in the episode, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, that's that, uh, it means a lot that you Go around hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed and, um, yeah, I, I certainly did.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you everybody. We we've been working up to this. All through season one, we've mentioned the Q&A episode numerous times. And so we're glad that we we finally managed to get to it. Season two is starting in January. Do join us on Patreon. And aside from that, we will see you for uh, the last episode of this season next week. Bye, everyone. Take care.